Hi everybody, welcome to Stress Free Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Little, and it is the 17th of February, uh, 2022, which is quite an advanced uh, time. I don't mean in a morally or politically or ethically way. I mean, just, I thought by 2022, things would be a little more interesting than this, but nevertheless, you get the hand that you're dealt, don't you? Um, so uh, I am going to try and make this a, a short show. I, I, I begin every show by saying I'm going to make this a short show. This one I'm really thinking I might have to. Um, so we'll get to the question pretty quickly. But as usual, we'll just chat for a second or two before we uh, before we get out there. Um, the uh, mentioned this on the virtue signal with uh, with Zoe today. Um, I have been feeling. And I'm on record uh, as saying that uh, I think things are getting, that they're, they're going to get bad before they get good, but that things in the long run are going to be fine. And, um, and uh, the more I see, the more I, I believe that. Um, I think right now, see, this, this is the, the left... The left is like a submarine. In, or, in order for it to be effective, it has to remain hidden. And once it comes up to the surface, then it's easy. It's an easy kill. Subs would run from destroyers, you know. But once, um, once the sub, if, they, if the destroyer forced the sub to surface, it's over. Not only did it have one gun against a, like a Fletcher's five guns, uh, but the guys had to open the hatch and climb out there and get to the gun and the destroyer's hull is not very thick, but but the hull of a U-boat or, or a sub is just real easy to sink. My point is, um, these guys have to be hidden in order to be effective. And the thing that I am seeing more and more of is, uh, is uh, surface U-boats is what I'm seeing. Every day, it seems to me, there's some new revelation and more evidence that um, that the people who can move in the middle are are waking up to this a new report there's just hundreds of new republicans born every day today you know you watch a super bowl game and you have to get your kid to school the next day and and put a mask on him for the second year in a row and uh and then um you see all these celebrities and politicians just out there without masks. It's not a surprise to us. We've been talking about this for two years now, almost almost two years to the day. I mean, another month, I guess. And and most people don't know it because they don't see it on the news, but some things become unavoidable. It's like I said, it's the, it's the, it's the surface submarine. Uh, and everywhere you look now, I'm seeing more and more signs that these... Uh, that these elitists that have determined that they can run our lives better than we can um, are are getting scared. That's what I think. I think they're getting. I think they're getting scared, and I think it's dawned on them. I, again, I mentioned a fair amount of this with Zoe today in a show called uh, Tyranny, but I think it's I think it's dawning on them that it's dawning on us that they are not 
remaining in power and being tyrants and authoritarians and telling us what to do and living by one standard while we live by another standard. Every time that's happened in history, the people who were doing the, the, uh, the, the hi-hat stuff, the highfalutin folks who were telling other people what to do, those people had guns or swords or sharp sticks or rocks at their command. In other words, in every other tyranny that I'm aware of in human history, the people doing the tyrannizing gave the people who were being tyrannized something to be frightened of. And these people have done the same thing with us, but what they've given us to be frightened of is we don't want our reputation ruined. We don't want to be doxxed. Mostly, mostly, we don't want to be thought of as racists or white supremacists or Nazis or whatever else the Canadian truck drivers are this week. Um, they, are, uh, they are using social pressure to get us to do what we want to do. And, and social pressure is extremely powerful or else we wouldn't be in this mess. But it's not the same thing as, as guys with guns in, in Black Maria's that come at 2 o'clock in the morning and take you and your family out to a field and shoot you. So it's a bluff. And I've been saying this for a while. It's a bluff. They're, they're bluffing. The, um, the bluff has worked for quite a long time, but now it's starting to fray. And, and I really think it's starting to fray faster. It's kind of like taxes, you know. Everybody, if everybody at the same time decided they weren't going to pay their taxes, what would they do? I mean, what would they do? The person organizing that would be probably in trouble. Uh, but if, if just spontaneously, let's just say, people just woke up one day and said, "No, I'm not paying. I'm not paying income tax anymore. I'm tired of it." What could they do? Arrest the country? Seriously, what could they do? This is kind of what's going on with the truckers, you know? Uh, I heard they arrested the, um, the guy who organized the demonstration in the, in the still I saw. He looked like he was expecting to be arrested, and, and, and God bless him. Um, but they can't arrest all of them, and the more pressure and the more force they use, the more people wake up, the more people wake up, the deeper they get. And, and the deeper these tyrants get, the more desperate they become. And then they start doing more and more desperate things, using more and more power to hold on to the power that they had that's slipping. And every time they grab for power in order to prevent their power from slipping away, more and more people become aware of not only what these people are doing, but who they are, what they are. Uh, Hillary Clinton, I hate to give away the whole virtue signal, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton is, is looking scared to me. And again, as I said to Zoe, uh, Hillary Clinton is, a, is for me personally really a, a litmus test of the, of the state of the country because there's no question about her guilt with the 30,000 emails that she didn't turn in, the fact that she tried to um, hide them, erase them, bend, spindle, or mutilate them. She's, that's not up for discussion. She's clearly guilty of those films. No question about it. None. Um, and then all of the irregularities with the Clinton Foundation, and then now these revelations about, you know, that, no, she did. She not only spied on her political opponent, which is what Watergate was about, 
but she actually spied on the president of the United States while he was in office. And this is monumental stuff. And and I'm I know that nobody in the media is covering it, but I'm surprised it's as much of a story as it is, and I'm surprised that she's looking as nervous as she is. Because Political Animal beat me to it. Just as I was about to say it, Political Animal 87, yes, in our comment section said, if justice cannot get Clinton, then there can be no justice. That's it. That's it. It's really that simple. So, if Hillary spends the rest of her miserable life walking free and gets away with it, including, I'm not saying she ordered this or anything, but I do find it odd that Jeffrey Epstein decided to kill himself during the 12-minute video blackout that just happened to spontaneously happen. So basically, if you can get away with murdering witnesses in front of the country, or having them murdered, obviously. And Benghazi, yes, and Marisha Dark just pointed out Benghazi, but that's practically ancient history now. If you can get away with that, and then just simply go on through life, then that's telling me and you, and worse, it's telling people like Gavin Newsom and Nancy Pelosi and all the rest of these people that they can essentially do whatever they want to if they have a D after their name because the press is on board and the big story is more important than the little story, right? The narrative, and they don't even believe in the narrative anymore. Now it's just plain, it's just plain graft. Um, the, 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 Biden, the Bidens are a crime syndicate. This is not up for discussion. This is not speculation. The evidence is, is it's not only there, there's photographs of it on, on Hunter's laptop and elsewhere. We're going to make this deal with the Chinese. I'm going to influence the, the, my dad to do something that the, Jap that the Chinese want. Dad does it. He, the big guy gets his 10%. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's treason for money. And, and so all of this, to me, basically comes down to Hillary Clinton. Not that she's the cause of it, but she is the, the actual litmus test. For those of you who perhaps may not have actually had any chemistry at all, a litmus test is, is a way you test for the, um, the pH, the acidity level of, of a liquid. There's a little piece of paper called a litmus, and it's uh, set up to have a certain pH, and you dip it in the water, and if it's above a certain pH, it changes from red to blue or whatever the hell else it did. It, it's a way of measuring the true state of things. It's not a, it's not a completely invented, you know, rhetorical device. It, it is, in fact, a way to measure what's reality going on, really going on. And so there she is, uh, walking around. If Hillary Clinton is scared now, even if she's free for the rest of her life, even if, even if she's only scared for a couple months, that means we're not, we're not done. I don't ever think we're done, by the way, but but if she's scared and she looks scared, then, okay. Now, uh, sorry, I'm having problems. Tiki Rocket said, quote, Hillary's untouchable, nothing will ever happen to her. I, I agree, except that I think the chance of something happening to her has gone up. Uh, and uh, Lady Hawk says that she spoke at the Dem meeting today and seems pretty defiant. She'll go from defiant to outright outrage. Believe me, this is what these people do when they're caught. They immediately counterattack and 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 try to, you know, 
to, to throw the spotlight. It's what the whole collusion with Russia thing that they invented against Donald Trump was about. It was a preemptive attack for treason, right? We've all committed treason and we are breaking the law and we're going to win this election, obviously, so we can commit more treason. And then the American people get up on their hind legs and they elect Donald Trump by a margin greater than they possibly could have imagined. So even the cheating couldn't get him there. So they got Donald Trump and then they realized, okay, now somebody's not playing according to the plan. And they started to get worried. So what happened? And I mean, in the day, three days after the election, forget the inauguration, he's still months away from being president. Three days after this catastrophe, after she sobered up, there's evidence that this, that Donald Trump is colluding with the Russians. And if you listen to lefties, that's what they believe, that he's, that he's a, a, a traitor who was paid for by the Russians. And so the big lie keeps on rolling. The guy who is the one who's going to put the traitors in jail is accused of treason. And given the magnifying power of the mainstream media, it works. Um, or it worked. Anyway, back to the Hillary thing. If she were, if she were just sailing through life without a care, just stay with me on this because I'm I'm trying to find the positive in things, and, and that's not wishful thinking. It's just hard. If I got the sense that she didn't give a damn, then that would be because she believes that she's absolutely untouchable, and that means the situation's very bad. If she's nervous, if she's nervous, then that means that there's at least a chance that there might be consequences because she's the one who's on the inside pulling the strings, and if the person pulling the strings is a little bit worried then that's because there's a reason and the evidence is, is overwhelming and it's going to just keep coming. So does anything happen to her? I don't know. If I had to guess, I'd say probably not. But uh, nevertheless, it's encouraging and these people are not going to have uh, the Congress forever. So uh, I, think in, I think in November they're going to take what might be the biggest shellacking in the history of the country. Um, and, uh, and if that happens, and there are huge, especially if there are, are I mean, it's not inconceivable, it's not likely, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. If there are non, uh, if there are, are, are veto-proof majorities in the House and Senate, then she's in for some jail time. So... It's a sign of hope. Um, my, um, uh, uh, let me talk real briefly about what Wazer uh, pointed out. Uh, have I seen Nerd Roddick's Leaving California latest video? Bill, it's a masterpiece. I listened to it on the way into the studio today. And when I got out of the car and um, sat down at the desk, the first thing I did was write him an email and say, hey, Gary, I just listened to your, to your show and I thought it was great. And um, if you have a slot for me, I'd love to come on and talk to you about why this is happening. We all know what's happening. Everybody knows it's happening. Why? Not many people know why. And since it's all part of the pop, pop culture thing, and since politics is downstream of culture, basically, and I've said this many times before, the reason Gavin Newsom let 
San Francisco deteriorate to the point where there was human feces in the street was because regular people had to walk through the human feces and he didn't. And that's why he wants everybody to wear a mask because everybody has to wear a mask, but he doesn't. And, uh, and everybody has to uh, shut down their business except for uh, those businesses that Nancy Pelosi may need in order to maintain the, the um, titanium outer hull. Uh, and so she can get a, a haircut or a dye or whatever, right? Um, so, so why? It's, it, it's, it's people think that, um, people think that they do these things in order to get power, but I think it's really much truer to say they get power in order to do these things. This is the, this is the, the payoff for them. This is the jollies for them. This is what makes them happy. And it's the only thing that makes them happy. Um, so, you know. We'll see. Anyway, uh, uh, Gary at Nerdrotic uh, basically said, uh, you know, the day that she, I've been looking at this picture for like, uh, how long now? 20 minutes? And I knew there's something wrong with it. It's just like the bat, like, it's like the riddle, it's like the Riddler's on camera. I got this Dutch angle thing going on here. Look at that wall. Be... Uh, never hard. Although it's a fish eye lens. That seems a little better. Um, uh, by the way, I don't know if you if you were aware of that, but uh, on the old Batman show, anytime there was a anytime that a criminal was on camera, uh, you got a Dutch angle. Every time that the, 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 the Riddler was on camera or or whatever, the room would be shot like that. Every single time, which I thought was pretty cool. So, um, yeah, so. Uh, Gary said that the, that the day that his wife had to close what was previously under Donald Trump her booming business, now it's worse now, I feel like I'm on the Titanic, hair salon business, that day when she was forced to close this business that had been doing so well was the day that Nancy Pelosi opened up one to get her hair cut. Now, I cannot remember the woman's name because I've never seen her before, but she was on a PragerU thing um, that I saw, I think, on Instagram. And, uh, and she made what I thought was a great, great point. Uh, she said, um, there was a Batman versus Two-Face with Bill Shatner as Two-Face, really? Good Lord. Um, but what this, what this woman said, this obviously conservative woman said, look, here's basically the numbers. Half of the of the gross domestic product in this country, which is, I don't know what it is now, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Half of them, almost exactly half, comes from big businesses. And the other half comes from small businesses. And I forget the numbers, but I wanna say that there's something like 20,000 big businesses. And big business doesn't mean, you know, necessarily like, you know, Google, like, you know, FedEx is a big business and you know, things like that. Um, three and a half million big businesses, I'm sorry, 20,000 big businesses versus three and a half million small businesses. And that's how the, the thing is balanced. To be perfectly honest with you, that's a lot more big businesses than I thought there were, but in any event, that's what she said. 
And she said, so if you're a politician and you want campaign funding and all the rest of the things that you need money for, including taxation or offering the ability to get away from taxation, then do you think it's easier to deal with three and a half million highly individualistic people? Or do you think it's easier to deal with 20,000, which really means 200, which really means 20? Big businesses, if you can convince them, if you can convince that 20 of the biggest businesses to go along with uh, with anything you want, you know, like for example, um, and here's gotta get gotta click this link so Shatner. And I'm not gonna watch it now. Oh, okay, it's animated. That doesn't count. Because uh, I was pretty sure I would have remember seeing that. Um, so so basically, why don't we do this? Why don't we put what's the matter with me today with this this camera driving nuts? Why don't we put more and more of the people that had small businesses that created half of the wealth in this country on any given year? Why don't we lock them down? Because what big businesses have that small businesses don't have is resources. A big business can lay off 50,000 people and those people will suffer, but the people running the business won't care. I, I used to think that they did, but I don't anymore. But a small business can't do that. And every day that the lockdown continued, just another hundreds of businesses that just said today's our last day we can't do it we we're out of money and uh and we ought to close so it was at the very least at the very very least it was very beneficial this this um this pandemic was very 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 beneficial to people like bill gates and uh not so beneficial to people that run the hair salon. Unless it's Nancy Pelosi's hair salon, in which case I'm sure they're fine. Uh, and, uh, and Tiki Rocket says this is also how regulation kills small business. Exactly. Small businesses, like this one, do not have the resources to fight this thing. And this is how they can get away with it, too. Um, I mentioned a little while ago that they're bluffing, that the, that, the, that the threat of force that they use, including jail time and arrest and so on, is essentially a, a chimera. Essentially, it's it's an illusion and uh, and a bluff. Um, when a, a month into the pandemic, April of 2020, we started to see the data. I remember so clearly saying, "Oh, somebody finally I remember doing this during the Coronasphere Lounge." Um, the They were watching these infection rates uh, go up and, and the total numbers go up and they were able to predict this is the date that's going to be worst. This is going to be the maximum mortality rate for California, April 17th. Tennessee is going to be April 22nd, whatever the case may be. Um, so uh, we had passed that point in California and Elon Musk had said, look, I, I'll never forget this, this graph he tweeted because to me it's one of the most important documents in American history. It basically says, look, here's here's the hospital. Let me see if I can do this this way. Yeah. Um, so here's the total number of people who are hospitalized. And here is time. And as we're going on through time, you say the projections mean that we're going to have this huge number of people. But the actual number is just barely above the baseline. 
those are actual cases. That's data. That's not a computer model. It's not a climate model. It's, it's data. So he said, based on the data, I'm going to open my Tesla factory. We did our two weeks to flatten the curve. And it looks like it's flat. So that's what I'm going to do. And they said, well, you can't do that. It's against the law. And, and Elon Musk, being Elon Musk, said, well, then come down and arrest me. But don't arrest any of my workers because it's not their fault. If you're going to arrest somebody, arrest me. And you know what they didn't do? Um, they didn't arrest him. You know why? Do you ever think about that? Two reasons. One of them is Elon Musk has the means to defend himself legally, unlike the people who are still in jail for uh, Washington demonstration of uh, the people's will. So you can't lock Elon Musk up for a year and a half and, and have him disappear into the, into the uh, black hole because he's, he's not anonymous and he's not, not even a question of poor. He's, he's, he's got the money to, to do this. And the second reason is because he's famous. So, uh, a uh, California member of the California State Legislature tweeted out, F Elon Musk, and his response to me, again, look, I'm not, an, I'm, not a, I'm not a worshiper of Elon Musk. The man has his faults and flaws. There's some things he does that I disagree with, but I do think he's the most remarkable person in the world right now. And when, when the California um, legislator said F Elon Musk, he's, he didn't argue back. You know, you know what his response was? It was two words, message received. Message received. That's, that's what's confident. That's what confidence is. Oh, F me and my companies and, and the billions of dollars that I pay in Texas. But he say, didn't he say a couple Months ago, when he was accused of being a freeloader, he, he just wrote a check for $9 billion in taxes. Uh, and then um, he, uh, then he, then he lived up to his, to his message received. In other words, I'll take these companies out of California, not just because you've insulted me, because it's insane to stay here, but nevertheless, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so anyway, all of that, uh, but I, I, I do see them starting to really starting to panic and, and the evidence that they're panicking is not just that, uh, Trudeau, you know, called in the kind of powers he would need if, if there was a nuclear war. It's that, um, it's that, uh, obviously the whole show's kind of stream of consciousness. I've read, uh, sorry. Was electric, electric Glock 18 said, are we discussing the fact the crackdown is currently coming down on the truckers? It is, and I'm sure that, um, you mean like right the second kind of thing? Listen, uh, if the police come out and start arresting truck drivers and throwing them in, in, the, in the clink, that will be... I hate to say it, that, that will be really good for freedom, right? Because when normal people see that, I know a lot of those people are brainwashed into thinking, um, oh, bus fulls of cops just pulled up. Okay. Well, you see, this is why I'm, this is why I'm encouraged. Um, 
Yeah, and, and the social services are coming for their kids. Listen, I don't want to be misunderstood because I am an enormously sympathetic, and not only sympathetic, I deeply admire every one of those people in the truck convoy. But if the government comes and with police cars full of, 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 of cops and in riot gear, and they arrest truck drivers who are waving Canadian flags and peacefully protesting, and if Child Protective Services takes their children away, and if the government takes their bank account away, just zeroes it out because he's got the power to do that now, then that creates conservatives. It creates masses of them. And look at the reaction to Trudeau in, in the Canadian Parliament. People, he's speaking and, and people are yelling at the top of their lungs. He's finished. He's finished. Because, because the submarine surfaced, right? That's it. That's the entire point. The sub surfaced. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you're not, if, if he's not having to deal with any kind of a serious problem, he's young and he's handsome and he's, he's not smart, he, but he knows how to act smart. And, and sophisticated, you know, and he's, he's, like, he's like, a, a, like a Hollywood movie. He's like electing, um, you know, George Clooney for, for president, right? And as long as everything's cool, the sub can say on the, under the surface and do all the damage and launch all the torpedoes it wants to because nobody's watching. But when something like this happens, now the sub's on the surface. So the more force he uses, the more people are going to protest the more his fate will be sealed politically. And they don't know how to do anything else. Because if they did, they wouldn't be the people that they are. Justin Trudeau is incapable of dealing with a genuine threat to his authority in any way other than reaching for the biggest stick he has because he has no confidence in his own abilities. What I would have done, what I would have done if I was Justin Trudeau, well, I wouldn't have done the things that got him into trouble anyway, but what I would have been seemed much more important really, not even important so much what I would have done, what I would have seemed to be doing is this. I, I don't know if I could go quite as far as Andrew Breitbart, but when Andrew Breitbart was being protested at a hotel, there's a crowd of down people down the street who were basically calling for his blood and, and out of nowhere, Andrew pulls out a pair of roller skates and roller skates right into the middle of the crowd and starts talking to him. And, and, and half an hour later, he's taking them all out for lunch. That's because Breitbart knew he was right and knew how to, knew how to defend himself it, rhetorically. And if I was Justin Trudeau and there was a big old line of truckers out there, I'd make sure the TV cameras were on. If I was a politician, that's what I would do. And I will walk outside the parliament building and I'll walk down the street to where the head of the truckers are and I'll shake their hands out in the cold, I'll pat them on the shoulder and I'll start talking to them. And, and this is the point I'm trying to make. That's what a smart person would do if they didn't want to deal with the protest. That's how you would disarm the pro Well, look, you know, you have some really important points and, and we're going to start working on this. But he can't, he can't do it because he doesn't have because he's a phony, because he's because he's a paper mache guy, just like Barack Obama. He's a he's a complete paper mache guy. The, the only time I've ever seen Barack Obama ha that I can think of, that I can remember anyway, 
The only time I've ever seen him without the, the mask, if you'll pardon the expression, um, he was during the second debate with Mitt Romney when Rodney had Romney had him on the ropes, on the ropes, and, and he reduced him to a stuttering cluster thing, you know? Uh, well, uh, you know, you could see, it's like he, he was just lost. I'd never be lost like that. Donald Trump would never be lost like that either. Donald Trump would have an answer. He'd have some kind of an answer. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be reduced to, I've never seen Donald Trump, I've seen Donald Trump lose control. I've seen Donald Trump do things that were destructive to Donald Trump, but I've never, ever, ever seen Donald Trump in a position where he doesn't know what to say because he's got actual beliefs about things. Now, a lot of people in the comment section are saying um, that he'll never leave and that, that, you know, that he's got the block on people. I agree he'll never leave voluntarily. No, that's not true. If you, if you want to know what I think is going to happen, Justin Trudeau is going to step down. And the only reason he's going to step down is because it's going to be made to, clear to him by the people in his own party. You either step down or you lose a vote of no confidence. Why don't you throw yourself on the sword and maintain a little dignity? That's what's going to happen. Somebody asked the question, the $600 question, and that is, does he have the moral authority to lead the country? No, he does not. He does not have the confidence of the people. And when the submarine is below the surface, nobody thinks about it, right? Everybody kind of on their own, you know, oh, this Trudeau thing, and I don't like this, and I don't like that, but everybody loves him. And so so, so the social proof machine continues on, and, and the, so do the loss of freedoms and all the rest of it. But when the sub comes to the surface, and you see what you're really dealing with, you see a very shallow, very scared guy running away from the only real problem he's ever faced which is kind of the, the mode for uh, Barack Obama. And it's the mode for Hillary Clinton, by the way. Um, <laughs> the defining Hillary Clinton moment is that if you want to know what kind of person she is, really is, indisputably without speculation, all you have to do is go to election night of 2016, where her supporters are honest to God now, not rhetorically, they are standing out in the snow and the rain, waiting for her to come out and give her concession speech, and she doesn't do it. I think she's the first candidate in history didn't really do it. Uh, and so she just got drunk and and throwing things around, and those people had to stay out there for three hours, and then they had to go home. If I lost an election, even if I lost an election that I thought was rigged, the, the one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to turn my back on my supporters, right? But she cannot do it. She, she, she cannot. She does not have the, the, the fiber, the moral fiber to do it. She just can't. So people are seeing that they're cowards, that they're crooks, that they're cowards. That they, that they have nothing but contempt for the American people in the same way that the movie producers have nothing but contempt for their audience, right? Uh, we'll put out a fourth, uh, a fourth Matrix movie. A fourth Matrix movie? It's been 30 years. Yeah, throw something together. Uh, how the hell are we going to do that? No, just, just, just think of something and throw it out there. The audience will eat anything. If it's got Matrix on it, people will eat it. They're just idiots. All they want is the, if it's got Star Wars on it or Matrix on it, they'll buy it. That's how they see us. They see us as children.
you know, and fools. They're um, in for a, uh, a surprise, I think. Uh, where did this one come and go? I like it so much. Sorry, I just remember. I just wanted to, to read it because I thought it was funny. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Tomes. Me, my favorite line from one of my favorite movies. Uh, <laughs> this is what this is what um, Lord Warfin should say to Justin Trudeau. You know, I am sure in the miserable annals of the earth you will be duly enshrined. I don't know what accent that was, but I love that line. I'm sure in the miserable annals of the earth you will be duly enshrined. Laugh a while you can, a monkey boy. Oh, and uh, and 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 Wazer points out that I need to make it crystal clear that uh, Justin Trudeau is not Fidel Castro's son. Uh, I'm look since we're here, right, and we're and we're having knocking back a few. This I'm not going to say publicly because I don't have the actual evidence. But if you ask me, I would say yes, of course he's Castro's son. There's a picture of of, of his mom making moon eyes at Fidel. His dad looks nothing like him and his dad looked like, you know, like, you know, that. And, and I'm pretty damn sure that Barack Obama's father was, was uh, Frank, uh, Frank Davis. That's who they look like. In a, in a, in a, you know, in a world that made sense, you would be able to ask for proof of these things. And yes, it's an invasion of privacy. And no, you shouldn't have to ask a citizen, but if you want to run for president, you should be willing to do all these things. Would you be willing to take a cognitive test? Yes, absolutely, I would. What about a deep look at your personal background? Well, obviously, if you can't pass a security test, Barack Obama would never pass the lowest level of, of uh, security clearance. And so we'll make him president of the United States. If you can't pass the kind of security clearance that you need to do the very, very lowest level work, then you shouldn't be president. You're done, that's it, disqualified. Um, so, you know, there you go. Um, oh boy. Uh, CP Tomes are saying uh, something through an oxygen tank and a cannula for, uh, oxygen cannula for your for wife. Which I come by a weapon, head cold variant is running rampant in the house. I feel for you, brother. I really do. Um, uh, I don't know how far along it is, and I don't know which variant you've got, but um, no matter how bad it gets, it will get better. Uh, uh, and this is the last point on this wizard says, Bill, the point is like um, uh, Jin Jing. Xi Jinping. Ding. You call him Pooh because he looks like Winnie the Pooh. He's not, a, he's not a handsome man, not a striking guy, I would say. We use Justin Trudeau as a test of dictatorship. If he bans or censors mentions of this, he fails the test. That's it, really, pretty much. If, you, um, if you're challenged and, you're res and your first response is to silence or censor people, then you are a tyrant, you're 
you're an authoritarian, you have no moral authority to uh, rule, and you're, you're terrified, you're, you're afraid. Xi Jinping. All right, let's, uh, let's get to the, to the gusto here. Uh, as usual, we will do the BillWhittle.com members forum questions first, and then we will go to Facebook. I am logging in now. Stratosphere Lounge questions and more. There's a there's a forum thing I wanted to check earlier, but I haven't had a chance to. This PG Rourke. Yes, uh, that's the um, that's the uh, that's what I was doing for moving back to America. I'll shoot it tomorrow. Uh, yeah, PJ enormous effect. I wouldn't be here without PJ Rourke. And he's one of the. I met a lot of people in this business. He's one of the ones I always wanted to meet, and I never did. Okay, here we go. Uh, yeah, sorry, one second. I'm going to move these little boxes around so that I can maintain my desktop of, of doom here. Hang on one second. Uh, all right, here we go. Okay, now I can see the comments as well. Uh, so first question is from Steve Finnegan. Uh, I guess that's spelled F-I-N-N-I-N-N-E-G-A-N, spells Finnegan. How do I remember that? I was just old enough while I was a three-year-old in New York. I remember people singing that song. Um, Anyway, he says, I'm a bit surprised I haven't heard anything about this on the site. Two six-foot-something Canadian police officers take down a 78-year-old four-foot-something old man for honking his car horn. Admittedly, the journalist was something of a jerk, but perhaps that's his function in all this. By the way, I understand what is prohibited is honking of air horns or train horns, not car horns. If true, then the old man was innocent. This is not a legal opinion. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a Canadian lawyer, yada, yada, yada. This has to be devastatingly bad image for the Canadian police. It is. It's a devastatingly bad image for the people that rightfully pride themselves on being the most tolerant and polite people in the world. And arresting that, that, um, that uh, pastor a couple months ago who, who shooed the police, shamed the police out of his church. Um, he's pulled over on the highway and arrested on the street because he stood up to the government. This is the submarine surfacing. This is, this is watching the, the, the conning tower start to emerge from the water and the little, you know, little ramming grill that they have on the front of a, of a U-boat, that little saw thing, you know, it's like it's, it's starting to break the water. And people are seeing this. They're not seeing it the way they would see it if it was covered fairly, but nevertheless, there it is. Yes, six foot tall Canadian police officers pulling a, a 78 year old man down to the ground is the end of Justin Trudeau, because we're not as far gone as we think. Um, so there you go. Um, I saw um, uh, Arthi Pauluski. That's uh, he's the he's the the, uh, the pastor, right? And they denied him bail this time. Okay, they're going to throw him in a dungeon. Okay. Shelby Foote said in the, in the Civil War, he said, you know, the, 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 a lot of oppressive abuses and, and, and 
people sent to jail for reasons that maybe they didn't deserve, you know, inciting riots or inciting, whatever. And they were sent to a dungeon, and Shelby Foote said, but sometimes a dungeon's not a bad place for a patriot. And I thought that made a lot of sense. Um, so I don't want to see anything bad happen to any of these people. I saw the most amazing thing, disgusting thing I've seen was a, a week ago where it was a, a looked like a, a parents' meeting of a school board, and everybody in there had a mask except for one guy, and these two big, I think they were private security guys with no legal authority, grabbed him out of the chair, you know, shoved him out the door. Okay. Okay. Bring on. You don't have the moral character to honestly deal with opposition because if you did, you'd be a conservative. So when the people start to rear their ugly heads, um, they you know, brave Sir Justin ran away. He, Brave Sir Justin ran away. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled. Uh, actually, that would be a good Photoshop if anybody wants to do that. I want to take Sir Robin out of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail um, and then put Justin's face in there. Brave Sir Justin ran away. Bravely ran away, away, oh, brave Sir Justin. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled. That's, that's it. Mock him. That's what it is. Um, yes, devastatingly bad image for the Canadian police, Steve. And, and every time that happens, which is the only thing that can happen if you're Justin Trudeau and that kind of person, or Nancy Pelosi, or, or, or Biden, or, or, or Harris, this is the only way they know how to deal with things. They don't have the moral courage to face genuine opposition. So they, they try to silence it. But when that happened and when people saw it, they became conservatives like that. And that is a, a getting to be a bumper crop. So anyway, um, Grayson Beckman. Grayson Beckman. Ooh. I'm hoping things are well up at stately Beckman Manor. Uh, hey, Bill, thank you for the compliment about my name last week. I, too, think the name is cool. Well, you got a second one there for free. Um, had you had any more thoughts regarding the idea of the second fleet of American conservatism? What do you think it should look like, and how do you think we should go about building it? Uh, this is, I think, the best, uh, I think it's the best work I, I've done this year, certainly. The idea that, that, that if Pearl Harbor hadn't happened, in, and we went to war with Japan, but without the sneak attack, we would have lost that war because well, we would have, would have gone on a lot longer because, um, uh, oh, Dave Big Booty is uh, listening from the wilds of central Wisconsin. Glad to hear it, Dave. Uh, be careful out there. Those Wisconsiners, you don't want to stop in that state because God knows if you stop in that state with a flat tire or something, those those sons of bitches will come out of their house and they'll, you know, come right up to your truck and offer you blankets and soup and a place to sleep and all the rest of that stuff. Oh. Uh, so the, the, I, I just thought it was a great analogy. The, 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 the ships that were sunk at Pearl Harbor 
that first fleet, the Pacific Fleet, pride of the nation, that we were all so sure was going to defend us against Japan. If that fleet hadn't been sunk and had gone out to sea, the Japanese would have eaten it alive. They were old, slow, undergunned, underarmored, underpowered, big, fat, obsolete battleships. The Arizona, I want to say, was commissioned in 1916. It was commissioned during the First World War, the Arizona. The, the, things like Yamato or even even you know even even old Japanese battleships like Fuso would would have would have eaten it for breakfast. So, just to reiterate the argument for those of you not familiar with it, I said, sinking the fleet in the Pacific was the one thing that guaranteed American success, because not well two things. One thing generated two things. Sinking the fleet in the Pacific did two things. Number one, it made us very, very angry. That was really important. And the second thing it did was it destroyed, it destroyed the obsolete weapon that we were counting on. And that was a real blessing. Again, just to recap, uh, and, and to give credit where credit is due, absolutely heroic, heroic, crazy, brilliant work on the part of divers and, and, and construction workers and engineers. By the time we got into the final push on Japan, uh, I think five of the seven battleships that we had there were back afloat. Arizona didn't make it, obviously, and I want to I know California did, was it maybe uh, Nevada? Another one wasn't worth, wasn't worth salvaging. But the other ones were raised, took two years. One of them was was it, who was capsized? Was it Utah? And they had to, they built this incredibly huge thing, nothing but these enormous girders. It's a little, it looked like a, like a Super Bowl stadium. And, and they, nine or, who am I kidding? Like 15 steel cables, and they're just winching this thing up from being uh, Oklahoma, from being capsized. And the thing's been underwater for two years, but nevertheless, it's a steel hull. They go in there and they clean out all the horrible stuff that's in there. And the next thing you know, they got the thing repainted. And then, and then, they didn't just go sail it out. Then they sent them back to the west coast of the United States, fitted them out with the new fire control radars, gave them as much stuff as they could do, but you could not change the design. You couldn't make them faster than they were. You couldn't. You could. You could upgrade the 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 the, the ship, but you couldn't change the ship. And so, once these five battleships that were the pride of the U.S. Navy in 1941, once they were at sea in 1944 and 45 they were given shore bombardment duty because they couldn't keep up with the new fleet. The new fleet, the second fleet, would just 10, 15 knots faster than they were. They couldn't, they couldn't keep up. The generation of battleships that were built after, were after Pearl Harbor, which in itself, by the way, just think about that, battleships that were built in the three years of, 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 of three and a half years that was left of the war, were well, they were not just the match of the Yamato. They were the, they were better than the Yamato. I think the, I think an Iowa battleship would have taken Yamato apart, apart, mostly because of our superior fire control and radar guidance, and uh, and I think we had better shells too. Uh, but that's the argument about the second fleet. So the country that we that we had that was attacked on the 2020 uh, election during the sneak attack on the 2020 election that society was not capable of defeating this leftist threat. And the new, the new fleet, the second fleet, in terms of the culture, has got to be better armed than that. And more importantly than better armed, we got to be faster than that. we got to be faster. Speed is, uh, speed is life. And what I mean by faster is we got to be 
we got to be quicker on our feet. Um, Zoe had a great string in one of the two shows we did today. I don't remember what it was, which which one it was. One was called Tyranny and the other was called Mentors. It must have been Tyranny. Um, but he really started going on. And he's saying, you know, it's, it's a mistake to say there's no such thing as white privilege because there is white privilege and white privilege is what drives the Democrats. It's the Democrats that have white privilege. In fact, you have to be a white liberal to have the to have the free time to be a, accusing people of white supremacy. The rest of the people are out there working and he's going on and on and I'm, and I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm getting religion. He knew how to, Zoe knows how to make the argument stick. And that's what the second fleet has to look like. We have to be, because it's a rhetorical battle, it's a battle of ideas. So the second fleet, the society that can defend itself against the left has to be able to match the left in rhetoric. Not in firepower, not in guns, not in not in you know in 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 um, in preparedness, in rhetoric. In rhetoric. That I did not know, uh, Tettleman. Repairs on USS Hearman after Lady Gulf took one month and then back in the fight. There were three uh, Fletcher class destroyers during Taffy Three the escort and the rest were made up of destroyer escorts. Hearman, Hull, and Johnston. Uh, Johnston and Hull went to the bottom. Hearman got the living crap beat out of it but stayed afloat and I did not know this but I find it now uh, that um, uh, that they patched her holes and put her back out into, into combat where she belongs. Uh, Wizard says your second fleet is coming from Trump's truth social network. We'll see. The network, the problem with the new network is the network effect, and that is for it to be effective, you have to have people joining it. And if nobody's there, then nobody wants to be there. But nevertheless, I think we'll, we'll see. He's got enough name draw to bring some people to it. I'll tell you one thing, if he's hosting videos, we will definitely post them there, that's for sure. Um, uh, uh, Ted also says, uh, Tettle, Tettleman's mentioned the, the whole, the whole Hearman. Um, said your uncle was very proud to be in Tokyo Bay for the signing of surrender. Uh, I bet he was. I bet he was. You know that during that surrender uh, in in Tokyo Bay, I don't remember how many were there. I want to say that either in the bay or outside the bay. I know for for a certain fact that in the final months of the war. The, the Japanese had one carrier left. It was in the inland sea, and they didn't want to sail it out there, and it ended up being bombed. And just, you know, and I think they had a second one that was used in the atomic bomb test. But we came to Tokyo Bay in 1945. We had 33 aircraft carriers, 33 aircraft carriers, and everything else out there. And they had aircraft fly over before the surrender ceremony, and apparently they were just wings and wings of aircraft, and they took hours to go overhead. That's smart. That's smart, smart, smart. That's, you know, when, when people surrender, before you're nice to them, you got to make sure that they know that, they're, that they've lost the fight and don't have any idea about getting back up again. So I thought that was just terrific. Uh, oh boy, that sounds familiar. Tiki Rocket says, my grandfather was in the Philippines and was pretty sure he was going to die before the bombs were dropped before he heard the bombs were dropped. Yep, your grandfather and my dad. My dad was a first lieutenant, uh, second lieutenant in Europe, in the US Army. Germany surrendered, and he figures it's just another month or two and we will be 
heading out to Japan. And we'd seen casualties at Guadalcanal, 1,500 killed. Uh, casualties at Iwo Jima, 7,000 killed. Ki casualties at Okinawa, 13,000 killed. The closer you get to Japan, the higher the death rate goes. This idea that the Japanese were getting ready to submit, surrender is just nonsense. It's just not true. You know, and that they'd already lost the war. As far as we're concerned, every single island we took, we paid for more and more and more. It wasn't like easier and easier. It was harder and harder and harder. They lost more, they lost more ships in a kamikaze attack in one day than the U.S. Navy had lost combined throughout its entire history. So uh, little facts like that help uh, determine, you know, your opinion on, on things like the use of the atomic bombs. For, because if they hadn't been used, a very good chance I wouldn't be here. Uh, so hopefully that'll uh, do it for you, Grayson. We, we got to be a lot more rhetorically capable. We got to be able to use things like pop culture and entertainment, but mostly we have to, we have to understand the argument and go out and make it. And, uh, as I said, this week's Moving Back to America is about, uh, P.J. O'Rourke and his, and his effect on me. But the reason P.J. O'Rourke made me a conservative was because he was very, very funny, number one, and number two, he was not the slightest bit ashamed of it at all, you know? I've used this term many times, you know, we're the, we're, how hard is it to sell freedom? We're the, we're the party of, of, um, of loud cars, fast guns, and hot women. That's, that's P.G. O'Rourke in a nutshell. That's what sold me on it, you know? He's, he's right. It's like they, they make us out to be weenies. They're the weenies. They're the, they're the ones that want you to wear a wetsuit and a helmet in the shower, you know, so you don't hurt yourself. They're the weenies. He was driving a, uh, a sports car, might have been a Porsche or Ferrari or a Lamborghini or something like that. And he's doing 130 miles an hour down the freeway. And he said he was just so giddy with sheer joy. And then he said something that also really turned me. He said, this is what civilization is about. This is why civilization exists. This is why we work so hard, so we can do things like this, so we can have that thrill of 130 miles an hour in this amazing machine that was built by the Italians. And, and that's, that just really appealed to me. He made, he made conservatism look not only fun, but just so self-obvious, you know? It's like, yeah. You know, and the flip side of this was that line I used to use all the time. You know, the left just wants you sitting around a burning cow patty, pulling parasites off of each other's skin, and you know, and eating your sustainable algae cakes and raising money for the Guatemala water snake. It's not a contest between these two things in terms of which one you'd rather do. And we can't sell it. And we're learning, and we're going to have to learn more before we get a chance to get out there and defeat these people, which we will do because it's over for them. Oh, and just real quick, because I love atomic bomb questions. Roy Hamill, so it wasn't the two nukes and promise of more. It was the Russians that made the Japanese surrender, eh? Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't remember what date the, Jap the, the, the Russians declared war on Japan, but I'm, I don't know, but I'm virtually certain it was after the first atomic bomb. Uh, and by the way, we, we gave them the whole nine yards. We didn't have a third bomb. We had the shell of a third bomb, but we didn't have it. It wasn't, it never got painted. I've seen the, the casing. It looked exactly like um, Fat Man. There's a plutonium bomb at Nagasaki. So we built four bombs and we used 25% of the arsenal to test them to see if they work. That was gadget. 
in, uh, in um, New Mexico. And then we used uh, uh, Little Boy, which was a uranium bullet bomb that was so likely to explode we feel like we didn't have to test it. And then we had, we've been, now we're out 50% of our atomic arsenals gone. We dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, and then if they hadn't surrendered then, it would have been a while because we had to build a third one. And if we had used the third one, then we're talking about months before more come online. And they would have just saved them for the invasion. Um, uh, the, uh, the people who say that the Japanese were trying to surrender and that we should have warned them by dropping it out in the bay, leaving us with one, and by the way, you want them to see it, so you want to, you know, we're going to be out there at 2 o'clock, bring your lawn chairs, look out in the bay, and no fear trying to shoot down the bomber. Uh, but the reason that you can tell that, the, that this claim that the Japanese were trying to surrender is an open lie is because they didn't surrender after we dropped a nuclear bomb on them. Right? We dropped a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima, and they didn't surrender. And we dropped one on Nagasaki, and they still didn't surrender. And, and, and they wanted to keep fighting with bamboo spears, and, and finally the emperor said, no, game over. That, that's what ended the war, the atomic bombs. Uh, yeah, so anyway. Uh, here we go from uh, Road Rider. New name. Uh, good to see you. Oh, I've been here five years. Uh, given the cluelessness of our present administration, what's presenting the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, from continually having accidental oopsies and other viruses, and this time targeted. There is nothing I would put past the CCP at this point. This is my great fear. It's not even a fear. Um, I don't want to call it an expectation. Let's just say this. If the masks go away, and a new strain appears. I'm convinced that Omicron, from what I know about biology and what I've learned about biology, which is significant in the last two years, uh, yes, I did miss Ian Nolan's question. Thank you, Marisha. I'll get to that next. Um, but once that COVID-19 virus is out there, it's going to do its thing, and it'll mutate. And the Delta variant was a mutation. And the Omicron variant, I think, was a natural mutation, which is the way viruses tend to evolve. They become more contagious and less deadly. That makes sense. The killer viruses have killed off the hosts. And since the virus just wants to reproduce itself, that's all it cares about. Being more contagious helps. But being more contagious and killing off the host doesn't help. So more contagious, less deadly. That's evolution and natural selection at work. So. Steve Green pointed this out many times. He said Omicron was the end of the pandemic because everybody got Omicron and nobody got terribly, terribly sick. Um, and I agree with that. Now, if we see something different that's more deadly, and especially if it's not COVID-19, then you know that, that we are now in a, in a, in a that, that, that the elites, that the elites have launched a bioweapon attack on the, on the people of the, of the planet. And that's not a fight they want to get into. They, they really don't. They really should just, and it's always this way, they, they, always this way. They should just 
keep doing what they're doing. Once again, keep the submarine below the surface, just doing all of this damage. Nobody knows where it is, but when they surface, boom. So if all of a sudden we start to hear, hey, guess what? Uh-oh, uh-oh, something really bad. It's not, uh, it was not even COVID or something else. Then it's time for you to really start worrying because even if it's not intentional, SARS from China, um, MERS from China, SARS-2, which is COVID from China, if the next one comes from China, and if there is another one, that's where it's going to come from, whether they did it or not on purpose, then it's pretty clear the Chinese don't know how to do this stuff, and, and the rest of the world needs to make them stop. And bird and swine flu too as well, Marisha says. And somebody said earlier, and then um, and then uh, Tiki Rocket said the conspiracists were right about everything. I, I think I saw a quote from Donald Trump. I don't know if I saw it at the time. But didn't he say that the, that the difference between crazy conspiracy theory and provable reality is six months to a year? Right? Hey, first time chat from viewer. That's always nice to know. Plume Martian. Bird flew from China. Yeah, it all comes from China. Isn't that odd? You would think that if you had a neighbor that was making people sick, the first time you'd say it's not his fault, you know, you sometimes get people sick. But if it turns out that every single disease is coming from this guy's house, you might want to ask him to, for the sake of all of us, because I don't care what he does in his house, but now that the entire neighborhood is sick, you might want to ask him to clean up uh, the sewer system or whatever else is, he's got in there. Um, anyway, that's that. I missed this one, sorry, and thank you for the catch, Marisha. Bill. You keep on mentioning that Florida has too many old and unhappy memories for you to flee to, but you need some place with warm weather and a beach. Certainly my wife does. You know, I hear that Boca Chica has a nice beach with live views of the most exciting and optimistic thing happening in the world right now. Uh, dot, dot, dot. And I don't get the reference. Oh, oh, Boca Chica. Sorry. See, that's that's me thinking Florida because there's Boca Raton and I think there's a Chica something. Yes, Boca Chica, south end of Texas. Absolutely. I wouldn't mind living in a place called Starport, Starbase. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that at all. Um, I still, you know, I'll just tell you a little secret, okay? Just between us. I don't want this getting out. I have to, I told, did I tell you the, the suit got here? The, neuro, the, the suit I've been waiting for? It's here. Uh, I can't get it to see the network. It needs to be each one of these, the suit and the two gloves are Wi-Fi devices that communicate via Wi-Fi. And I got the suit and one of the gloves on the 2.4G network, but it said you can't be careful when you try to do it on 2.4G. And so it couldn't see both gloves at the same time. I got all three, I got the both gloves in the suit recognized by the network, but I couldn't get them both up, at the, all three up at the same time. So, okay, I tried to do it on 5G. Can't get it to look at 5G. So I ordered a new router. It'll be here tomorrow, and I'm going to put in a router that sits on the, on the other box, and it's going to be just for this. That's all it is, nothing else on it, and if that doesn't do it, I'll be, I'll be a little upset. But I did get the suit on, and I did do a couple of little tests, and it looked really good. Um, so um, I bring this up to say I need to finish, obviously, the, the pitch for the uh, Dia's for Dungeon animation. And I've been waiting for this, so hopefully we can see some real progress now. But 
either after that or somewhere in here. I'm really thinking this year. Um, I'm, I've decided I'm going to do something. And I had this, I made this decision within the last two weeks. Uh, six years ago, seven years ago, I was talking about an idea called the uh, Free Frontier. And, and it was the idea of crowdsourcing the space program because I was just sick of nothing happening. And then along comes SpaceX and it's like, yeah, okay, that's a bigger vision than I had. And I had a pretty big vision. But when I was thinking about this idea, I had the idea for a TV commercial. And the TV commercial was going to be, you see the captions as 2028 or 2032 or whatever, and you see there's this kind of a more advanced lander than the Apollo lander on the moon, right? And, and you see uh, this astronaut coming down, and he hammers in the flag, and then you, you pull back, and you realize it's the Chinese flag, and it's a punch in the gut for every American patriot. It's like, oh, and he's saying something about the long march, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, look at this Chinese triumph and all these cutaways to Chinese people just crying with pride and tears. And then uh, as he plants his flag, you pan over, and there's a couple of American astronauts leaning up against this rover. And, uh, you know, and, and in the background behind them is a, is a dome that's got a casino in it. Hotel, recreation, you know, Lucis slots on the moon, this, this kind of thing. And they drive over and pick them up and take them there. In other words, okay, congratulations, Shani, you landed on the moon. We've done it so long ago. We're so far ahead of you now. You want to make a big deal out of this? Then that's fine. You can do it back at the casino. We got showers. You, you, you'll love it. Buffet's amazing, really, by the way. Uh, anyway, I've decided, uh, I don't know when, I'm not going to commit to the time, but I've decided that I'm going to make that commercial. Now, make it in Unreal Engine 5. I'm going to make it look very, very, very believable and very good. But when I do the pan, I'm going to have starships in the background. And I'm going to basically say thank you, Elon Musk, for giving those Apollo kids something to believe in again. And I think, I think that would be something he would see. And who knows, maybe get a call. Because he doesn't need my help with business. Nobody needs my help with business. Uh, but but I could um, I could get I could put a SpaceX spin on on things. You know that would be fun. Um, and uh, uh, Tiki Rocket says, "Does Bert Rutan know Elon? He does, although." Um, He's been much tougher to get a hold of lately. Uh, so anyway, I just think it'd be fun to go ahead and do that. And, and to be honest with you, it'll actually be pretty easy to do. They've got some great quality suits and uh, much simpler than the stuff I'm doing now. Much. So anyway, um, there you go. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> Elon Musk is running a private company. I don't know who he's going to have do it. But if he goes to the moon or Mars, if he actually gets there, he'll pick the people that are most qualified. But if, if, if it were NASA, and it will not be NASA, NASA's never going to fly humans again. I, I knew that when they retired the space shuttle. But if it were NASA, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that if there was a mission that was going to go in 2023, Joe Biden would say that, that the first that whoever it is that steps off the limb is going to be a woman of color. I guarantee you it's a chance of that happening 100%.
And that's not what excellence is all about. It's like, it's like well, there's not enough black people in, in, uh, on the Academy Awards. Well, why don't you have a best black actor category? You see how demeaning that is and how meaningless it is? Um, so, anyway, uh, there you go. Boca Chica would be nice, but Southern Texas, I've never been to, I mean, I've been to Cancun, but I've never been to the, to the uh, southern part near Galveston. I've heard it's awfully humid and, you know. On the other hand, I haven't been there, so let me see. Uh, but thank you for the suggestion, because um, it's going to be Texas or Florida. Um, okay, so just did the one from uh, Road Rider. Here's Henry Lumley. Um, all all out narrative warfare. Hey, Bill, here's another idea I was thinking about today. Whoever the Republicans, whoever the next Republican that takes the presidency needs to bring back the classic Reagan fireside chats, but with a very specific targeted purpose. We need the president and even red state governors to begin using their executive authority to demand primetime air from the major networks and use that time often, like every week or other two weeks, to take long-held Democrat media lies and destroy them absolutely and thoroughly. Take an hour and put together the ultimate takedown of a sacred Democratic lie with the facts and the truth that have been kept from the people of America by the media and those in power. We don't need the actual executive to give the presentation. I don't care if it's Trump sitting next to a fire playing PragerU videos, debunking long-held lies like the party switch, uh, yeah, the party switch, uh, uh, voter ID lies, Clinton corruption, Democrat-China connections, or the Biden crime family. We need these presentations of the truth to come with a preemptive debunking of all the media fact check talking points as well. Just imagine Trump sitting next to Dr. Carol Swan and her going through the entire history of the Democrats' lies on party switch, the KKK 1619 and the Jim Crow laws show the official voting records from Congress, party affiliation and all. We need something drastic to break through the media empire of lies to borrow a term from uh, Clavin the Bald. Uh, hang on a second. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I thought I got that right. I don't know if you saw this, but um, and 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 here's the thing, um, Henry. And and I, I, I ju I'm just saying this to make the point. Uh, an hour-long fireside chat is for, is first fleet is first fleet thinking. No one's going to sit and watch an hour of anything. I won't sit and watch an hour of anything. Your your point. Is, is spot on, absolutely perfect, and that we need to go on the offensive and stay on the offensive, and that's the point you're making, and on that you are as right as you can be, but I think the, I think the technique and the strategy is obsolete. I'll tell you what's not obsolete. Two things come to mind. First of all, I don't know if you saw this, but um, again, let me know if I got any of the details wrong. My understanding is that when uh, was that when she called the Virginia Assembly to order, the black Republican Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, uh, Winsome Sears, what a great, great, great name. Somebody had stolen her gavel, ha ha. It wasn't a Republican. It must have been one of those tolerant, uh, you know, non-racial uh, Democrats. Left winger stole her gavel, right? Tunk, 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 I now call the Assembly to order. So you know what she did? 
she took off her shoe and it was like a pump and she used her shoe. She used like the stylish woman shoe, tunk, tunk, tunk. I now call this assembly to order. That is the A-bomb. It's the A-bomb. It's the A-bomb. Uh, it's unbeatable. She's unbeatable. And she's not unbeatable because she's black. She's unbeatable because she's black and she is an example of the fact that it doesn't matter that she's black. She's a, an ex-Marine, all of that stuff. When she when she called that to order by taking, I guess it was a red shoe and, and banging the old, you know, pumps on, on the on the thing, I thought that is absolutely 100%. Th that's atomic. There's nuclear weapons. It's nuclear weapons. There's no There's no fighting back from that for them, none. They decided to steal her gavel, which is a petty, childish little thing, and she just she she didn't even outflank them. She just kind of it was like it was like the end of the first um, Matrix movie where you know the whole time he's fighting Agent Smith and finally he gets this thing. She's kind of like I'm just you know I'm 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 bored I'm bored blocking all of these all of these hits. Um, boom, that was brilliant. I'll give you a second example, which I saw yesterday, I think. It was a clip, I think it was a Daily Wire clip, and it was a it was Matt Walsh talking in front of a huge crowd of people. Now Matt's been down about the whole transgendered athlete thing and, and so on, and he's of course been identified as a transphobe and a homophobe and all the rest of these things. But the particular clip I saw was a large room full of people and they were by no means all conservatives. There were a lot of there were a lot of, you know, left-wingers in there to, to, you know, speak truth to power. But it was a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable clip. And Matt Walsh didn't say a word. He's taking questions, and this very tall, thin person comes up to the mic and says, um, uh, I want you to know, first of all, that I'm, I'm one of the people that, that protested against you coming here. And Matt had the good sense to let him keep going. And then the guy said, um, I'm, I'm trans myself, and I came down here because I was getting ready to respond to, um, to all of the hate that you were spewing. But I've listened to you for the last hour, and I don't hear anything hateful coming out of your mouth. I don't hear anything transphobic. I don't hear anything homophobic. As a matter of fact, everything you've said is 100% correct. I would disagree with you about some of the techniques and stuff, but, he's, but basically what he said was people told him, don't go to this because he's a hate-spewing racist Republican. And he went, and, and he had the courage to stand up and say, I was wrong about you, and the people I hung out with were wrong about you. Um, that, that's Second Fleet stuff, right? That's, that's, that's Sun Tzu and swordlessness, the idea of swordlessness being the ultimate warrior victory where you defeat the enemy using their weapons. You walk unarmed into the enemy camp and you'll, you'll defeat them with their weapons. This is the kind of thinking we need, but your, but your strategy is, is dead on. We need to be constantly, constantly fighting back against this stuff and, and never, ever let them get away with it. Uh, greetings, Bill Wazer 13 here. I'm not giving up on, not giving up moving to Red US. Starting with a small story for laughs, I once spent two years in Canada as a student and got unpleasantly surprised how SJWs the big city folks were. Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, Ottawa, pretty much. 
Canadians of yore were big bearded lumberjacks that chop wood at at 5F. The hive mind will tell me what that means. And killed bears with their bare hands for the skin trade. They also punched way above their weight in World War I and World War II. Um, I believe somewhere in evolution they lost their balls and became the meek apologists of today. That's a, there's an actual theory of that and it involves R and K and I haven't talked about that in two, three years. Uh, but the truckers seem to have managed to resurface their original DNA strands and put it to the Darwin's natural selection test against the SJW variant. May the fittest one survive it. Exactly right. Exactly right, yes. Precisely correct. The submarine has surfaced and, and, and people have come out and, and once they come out, then they start running. Um, as for my question of the week, do you think that the trucker movement will endure and survive 20 more, 27 more days of emergency powers or the lack of convoy, or the lack of the convoy, or the lack of coverage, sorry, plus seizing of their children and lively seizing of their children, by the way, now you know who you're up against, really. Now you really know. Um, or do you think that that will defeat it? And how emboldened will other aspiring authoritarians be if the freedom convoy fades? Maybe the U.S. truckers should detour on their way to D.C. and aid their northerners, brothers, brother, brethren first. Also, watch the leaving... California latest neurotic video if you haven't seen it yet it's a work of art link below best of luck and very best regards talked about that earlier in the show uh, about neurotic and stuff it is it's excellent um, you see the only thing I was worried about with the trucker convoy was that is was that it would just fade away that was what I was worried about and as we said at the beginning of the show, uh, the more they crack down, the more powerful it becomes. If if these people had any courage or conviction, if they were as if they were as smart as they were evil, like I said, Trudeau would have gone out there, shaken hands, arm around the guy, let's go inside and talk promised him whatever he would have promised him and then basically uh, let time go by constantly reassure them that you're working on this and doing all this and and looking at this and we've got this under consideration and this is an excellent point just basically lie and and steal time and let the thing fade away let it become old news that's what I was worried about but that's not what's happening. As we mentioned earlier in the show, apparently they're already starting to arrest truckers. If you arrest truckers, you get more of what we saw earlier with that question, where you've got these gigantic six-foot guys in Canadian police uniforms who are respected by the Canadian people, pulling people out of trucks and using force on old men because they're honking their horns, then, then that's, the end of, that's the end of them. That's, that's when Canadians realize that they've... They, that the guy is a tyrant. And the more they protest, the more force he's going to use. And the more force he uses, the more they're going to protest. And guess who's going to win this fight? When you go to war against your own people, you lose. That's never been, there's never been an exception to that. It takes a while sometimes. The Soviet Union took practically 80 years. But you never win when you go to war against your own people. And that's what they've done there and here and all around the world. So 
their time is no, their time is uh, is uh, is what is it? They're living on borrowed time. Um, so, look, I don't want anybody to get hurt, uh, but there is no but. I don't want anybody to get hurt. If they use force against them, the more force they use, the more the protesters are going to protest. The more people are going to side with the protesters, the more force he uses, the weaker he gets, and that's going to force him to use even more force. And there goes the, um, the, 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 the death spiral. He, he can't get out of it. We already know he can't get out of it. He's doomed. He's doomed because he had one chance to get out of it, and that was in the beginning by showing a little bit of guts, a little bit of class. And even if he was lying, which I'm sure he would have been, make it look like you're a reasonable guy who's the leader of a democratic country, and whatever you do, keep the submarine below the surface. But he didn't. They want us to shut up. We want them to keep talking. Thank you, Henry. Enrique. Uh, Harry Lundley again. Uh, deprogramming. Hey, Bill, do you think that the next administration will or should include a psychologist who is a specialist in deprogramming to create messaging for the purposes of deprogramming the population from the cult of the Karens? Um, political, I just, political analysts, Bill, you're talking about our enemies as if they have the shame or integrity to step down. They will need to be driven out by force. Nothing else will get through to these people. They won't be driven out. They don't need to be driven out by force. Uh, political animal. For, you're absolutely right about the motivation. If I had to predict, I don't know, but if I had to predict, he will be forced out of office, not by the pro protesters. He'll be forced, he, he would stay in his fortress till the end of time. I think he's going to be forced out of office by other liberals who say you are absolute, well, you surface the submarine. Now everybody knows what we are, and now we're all going to pay for it. You got to go, and we got to get somebody in here who looks like, what do you think Barack Obama made his speech about spending a thousand Sundays in Reverend Wright's church and claiming I never heard anything against uh, white people in the church. He was there for a thousand Sundays. Why do you think he made that speech in front of an American flag factory at 13, 15, 20, 25 uh, American flags behind him, right? Why? Because he realized that he had surfaced and now he wants to go dive deep. And in order to dive deep, I've got to look like what they want me to look like, which is... So... The other members of his party are going to force him out because he has really, really, really exposed them for what they are. Um, uh, Bill, you do not know Canadian politics. The Liberal Party is fully behind Trudeau, and they all defend him and the building of COVID concentration camps. I don't doubt that at all. I, I don't doubt it at all. But... Canada had a conservative government for a number of years because I went up there and spoke at, uh, in Ottawa. And the table is, is tilting. This is my entire point, right? The, my entire point is, yes, it's unthinkable that Trudeau would be forced out of office, but that was before Trudeau became Kim Jong Trudeau. And, and every single action he takes tilts the table further and further and further. And it, it gets to the point where every day, every time a new, a new poll on this matter comes out, the gap between Republicans and Democrats gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. 
it gets bigger because we see them doing what they're doing and we don't like it. If San Francisco could recall the three most left-wing lunatics on the San Francisco school board, if they could throw them out because they were too far left, then, then it's a question of just the tables are turning. Look, they're calling for law and order in LA now. And the reason they're doing it is not because they care about people like me or anybody else. They care because, I forget her name, but a rich socialite was murdered by an intruder in her Brentwood bedroom. And that's where they live. They finally realize, wait a minute now, you're telling me the crime and the homelessness is so bad now that somebody could come through my window in Brentwood and kill me? Yeah, that's what happened. Now, all of a sudden, it's all about, now it's all about, well, we got some law and order here because now we're talking about important people being threatened and, and, and damaged by crime. So now we got to do something. Okay. Okay. Keep it up. Keep it up. There. Well, he says that's not happening here in Canada. You may be right. As a matter of fact, you're probably right. I don't live there. I don't see it. But I do see the optics. And I do have a sense of the Canadian character. And what I've experienced from Canada is that they have two essential elements to their identity. One of them is that they're not the United States. When I was in Canada, and, and, and both or three times I've been in Canada, I noticed that was that there was a great deal of pride in showing me as an American the things that Canadians did better than Americans, which primarily was their uh, national health system. But the other thing is, is that Canadians pride themselves on being the nicest, most polite people in the world. There's a cartoon about two guys holding a door for each other. One's holding a door saying, you first. No, and the other one's saying, no, you first. And the subtitle is Canadian standoff, like a Mexican standoff. Polite people don't beat people up and pull them out of trucks. And and polite people and, and kind, decent, well-mannered people don't have a government that does that either. When you see policemen dressed in black riot gear assaulting people who are waving Canadian flags and not causing any damage other than honking their horn when you see when you see this kind of you know uh, this kind of paramilitary response to people honking their horns that that's that's the end of them I don't know how long it's going to take but I, I I bet you a dollar I bet you a dollar so we'll see we'll see um, Anyway, back to Henry Lumley's question about deprogramming. Um, what's the term? Is it mass formation uh, psychosis? Uh, it's a term that's being bandied around a bit, I think, because it was featured on, on uh, Joe Rogan's show. Um, mass formation uh, uh, psychosis is the idea that once you have a, enough people moving in one direction, then it, it basically becomes self-reinforcing mass. And so basically what it means is um, if you can get enough people to believe in the lie, then other people will come on board because they don't want to be seen as disagreeing with the lie. And the more they get exposed to the lie, the more, the more um, indoctrinated they become and so on and so on and so on. And this is how, if you want to know how Hitler came to power, it's mass formation uh, psychosis. It's, it's, it's people, what were mostly good people, suddenly becoming very, very bad people because they believed in something that was sold to them under false pretenses. Um, yeah, and Marisha points out it's like the Ash Conformity Experiment. 
which I've talked about before. You got six people in a row. You put out an ad that this is a psychological and a perception test. You got five actors and the test subject, but the test subject doesn't know the other people are actors. And he's shown, the first person shown a piece of string and a smaller piece of string below it. Which one is the longer piece of string? The one on top. And the guy thinks you're crazy. And then they go to the second guy. Which one? The one on top is obviously bigger. And now the guy's starting to think. They get to the third guy, the one on top. Now the test subject is thinking either I'm crazy or I'm blind. And so many times when they come to him, which one's larger? Uh, uh, the, the one on the bottom. He may not believe it. This is the whole emperor's new clothes things. You don't believe in it, but you send out social signals that you do, which goes to other people that don't believe in it, but they also send out and receive these social signals. So it's like a house of cards. Um, and that, that needs to be done. Absolutely needs to be done. I heard uh, Joy Bahar say, uh, read that Joy Bahar said she's going to wear a mask for the indefinite future. I don't doubt that at all. I have no doubt whatsoever that, that people like her will be wearing masks for the rest of their lives. In the same way, in the same way that, you know, old lefties put, you know, bumper stickers on their car. Right? This is my badge of pride. This is, this is showing I was true, true, ideologically true the whole way through and, and, and that I was always a, a right-thinking member of, 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 uh, of the state and, uh, and I'm not ever going to surrender this mask because, because the bad guys have been saying you don't need the mask and so I'm going to wear the mask for the rest of my life. That's pretty much it. That's how it's going to go. And that's fine with me. It's fine with me um, from a personal point of view and it's fine with me from a political point of view. I don't care what Joy Behar does. I don't care if Joy Behar wants to go out in a bubble. I don't care if she locks herself in, in, her, in her basement and has uh, virus filtration filters and never steps outside again. It doesn't make any difference to me. I don't care. If she wants to live that way, that's fine. It's her business. I'm not going to tell her to take the mask off. I'm not going not to protest her taking the mask off. And I'm not going to go up to her and say you need to take the mask off because that's a Karen thing to do. But she doesn't have the right to make the rest of us live in fear like that. And so there you go. Um, Okay, here's a uh, Marusha question, and then there's a Patrick Reed question, and then, oh my gosh, another big Marusha question. Here's Charles Tomes. Here's another Charles Tomes. Well, we got a full house here today, and I'm not sure that bodes well for Facebook, but we'll see, because I realize from the last two shows that I, I do not have time to get to all of them. I don't think I'm trying to make it shorter, but it comes a point when it becomes so short that it's just, you know. No. Um, all right. Uh, Henry Lumley, in case you did not already go on a rant about it, any thoughts on the Durham report? Well, fortunately for, for the Facebook posters, I have actually already gone on a rant on that one. Um, all right, so uh, here's a, here's a, a novelette from, uh, from Marusha Dark here. Uh, it, it's, it's long enough that I really should just try to comprehend this rather than just read it out loud. Uh, okay, so it's about artificial intelligence, and it's about me mentioning in the colonies, uh, talking about the science fiction show I want to do, that artificial intelligence, 
self-sentient AI would be the nuclear weapon of the future, that once one person has it or uses it, uses it, everybody's got to have it, but once one person uses it, everybody has to. She thinks that might be a good idea. Uh, so, essentially, by the time your stories take place, AI would be a form of super being when compared to humans. The worry, if I understand correctly, is that their presence will eclipse and obviate anything we find unique or interesting about humans in terms of the story. However, our culture is filled with tons of great and interesting stories in which humans walk alongside gods, giants, robots, dragons, heroes, aliens, and other entities far superior to humans, from Marvel to Star Trek to person of interest to mythology and so on. In all of these cases, the story focuses on the human element and the human perspective, and I think you could easily borrow from those same tropes, except that those stories are told by humans. In other words, Greek mythology walking with the gods became a thing but if he had actually walked with the gods it would have been something completely different if Zeus had come down from Mount Olympus then Greek mythology would have been very different very different and this kind of is going to the point I'm trying to make here we can, we, you point out correctly that we can, we can constantly explore the idea of, of what would happen if humans co-inhabited a place with, with uh, a vastly superior being. But that's us speculating about it. That's us saying, oh, uh, thunder, and there must be a guy up there throwing lightning bolts. Not the same thing as having the guy walk down and start throwing lightning bolts. That's an entirely different story, but to continue. Um, as for why it'd be better to do this, I've never really been one to partake in stories for base entertainment or pleasure, but rather to try and learn moral lessons through vicarious experiences and see how I can apply them to my life and grow as a person. I'm sure plenty of other people do this as well. Fiction can often be a valuable trial run to work through things without recourse to the real world. That's exactly what science fiction is. Science fiction is the laboratory of, of, of imagination. What would happen if, if all of the, the worst parts of humanity came true? What would happen? If you took the Dark Ages plus technology, what would happen? Well, Warhammer 40K is what happened. So it, it, and Star Trek, great example on the other end of the spectrum. What would happen if we managed to eliminate the need for menial work? And this is the theory anyway. And and, and not only complete equality, but family of man and so on and so on. All we would do is explore and, and live in wonderful clean buildings and so on. Maybe. Uh, my experience with people who've had endless free time and their own uh, independent means of, of uh, sustenance is that they don't teach themselves PhD topics. They mostly just sit around and watch WKRP in Cincinnati uh, marathons. And I'm one of those people. Um, towards that end, wouldn't it be incumbent on, upon those of us who can see what's coming down the pike to use the opportunity to tell a story that can serve as an example or even a warning to the rest of humanity of what our p possible future might be like? Question mark. To the extent that AR, AI are a danger, we can showcase the danger, and to the extent that they're a benefit, we showcase that as well, revealing their trade-offs and letting the audience decide how you feel about it, which is exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly what I'm doing. By making AI the nuclear weapons of the future, I am giving people my opinion of what AI is. And my opinion of AI is that even the very best case AI, best case AI, is, a, is, is the end of the society as we know it. 
Um, I'll finish reading the questions and I'll elaborate on it. Different AI could have different personalities. One very prominent example comes to mind is the Doctor from Star Trek Voyager, who I'll argue is one of the mo most interesting character in that series. It's a low bar to clear, but yes. Uh, despite being a superpowered AI with access to all the ship systems, some could act as tools or other entities. Some would be autonomous, trying to hurt or help humanity of their own accord, seeing us as pets, diseases, allies, or curious specimens to be observed and studied. The possibilities are endless. Given that there will presumably be many worlds and many competing fractions in the colonies, different episodes could explore various paths that we could take, both good and bad. After all, isn't that what the liberal arts are meant to be about? I'm reminded of one of the more clever things that I've said uh, spontaneously, and that is how fast does the Enterprise travel in Star Trek? And the answer is it travels precisely as fast as the script as the script needs it to travel. That's how fast the Enterprise travels, and that's how far things are away from each other. They are far away from each other so that the Enterprise can get there at the point in the script where the Enterprise is supposed to get there. That's how it works. You could have done Star Trek where you say we have to be at SETI Alpha 5 and, and we you know there's a crisis it's going to take us two and a half weeks to get there and then spent an hour showing every hour of that two and a half weeks you could have done it that way and that would have been realistic but that wouldn't have been interesting so what I'm saying is the reason that I'm putting AI in a box is number one I don't trust AI but number two if I let AI out of the box then the people don't have anything to do right what 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 what's space combat if, if you've got something that thinks thousands of times faster than you or decides not to fight at all, where's, wh where do I go from there? What's, if you, you cannot, you cannot put that kind of power into the world because in fact, the reason you have to keep it in the box, the reason I wanted to keep it in the box was specifically because no one knows what the world will look like if you let this AI out of the box, but clearly there won't be people on board spaceships fighting battles because the AI is gonna be able to do that like everything else, thousands or millions of times better and faster than we can. So let's just say that because of that, We've uh, had some bad experiences in the past in the backstory, and uh, so so no, we're not gonna. We we have a we all have agreement. Everybody's got AI, but no one wants to be the first to use it. What I've really done by that, from a from a dramatic point of view, and that's the only point of view that matters, is I've allowed people back into the into the into the loop. I, I've I've just justified why humans can be in command of spaceships not even just not even just combat because ai can explore better too right i mean human eyeball is just you know it's pretty impressive work when you're working with you know water and jelly but as a as a visual thing it's garbage it's got a tiny little field that is in focus everything outside of the thing that you're looking at is not in focus it's only got a very narrow spectrum that it can see prone to damage and all the rest of it. If you want to explore, the way to do it is to have AI send out probes and put together a, a beautiful virtual reality thing. And this is my fear, is that we were gonna, is that we're gonna become a nature, uh, uh, we're gonna become a species of watchers rather than doers. And so in order to cut that 
logical conclusion off, because that's what it is, it's a logical conclusion, in order to prevent that future from happening, I have to think of a way to get AI in a box. And no one else is even dealing with it. For example, I saw the end of, I saw The Expanse season six. I, I never particularly liked that show, but that was without question the most, I never saw Game of Thrones or anything, but that was the most down, disappointing, you know, lack of payoff. Here's this guy that's murdered millions and millions of people and his son, he has a moment of, oh, I'm frozen by a, by a red thing. Oh, you know, and it, just a moment of instant, he's not even in pain. And the son just decides, ah, what the hell? You know, I'm gonna change my name. I'm not with that anymore. Well, you murdered 40 million people, pal, you know? Yeah, well, that was, that was the old me, horrible. But just taking, just taking uh, uh, The Expanse as the most recent example of science fiction, space-based science fiction, they don't even touch AI. They don't even mention it. And they don't mention it for the same reasons that I do. Because if you bring it into the story, then you can't write the story anymore. Not only does it take the people out of the story, the reason they call the, reason they call the, the, the realization and the implementation of, of genuine hard AI self-intelligent computers, they call that the singularity for a reason. And the reason they call that the singularity is because nobody can see past that. Once machines become smarter than us, nobody can predict the future. It's, it's, it's out of our hands. You can look at history and kind of predict where things are going. And the purpose of science fiction is to say, if we keep doing these things that we're doing now that I like, then things will get better and see how much better they'll get. And if we do these things I don't like, then things will get worse and see how much worse they get, right? That's, that's what it's there for. It gives you a chance to project the present into the future. I've said before, and I think it's true, I hate to believe it, but I think it's true. If there ever is interstellar travel, then our vision of what it will look like is as far off as the vision of, of Buck Rogers from the 30s. So... Marusha says people believe God and Jesus were real, though. Well, Jesus was real. You don't have to believe he's the son of God, but I think it's pretty clear he was real. Uh, in any event, I'm not going to get into that argument now because we have a lot of other things to do. But that's why I did it, and, and, uh, and the only way to deal with it is, is, to, is to acknowledge its presence and then basically just forget it. Um, Okay, so uh, Patrick Reed, Bill, do you have any thoughts on the anniversary of the passing of Rush Limbaugh? Has it been a year, really? I feel like I never got the chance to properly mourn his loss. You don't get bereavement time when a radio talk show host dies. Of course, he was more than that. He was a friend that I had for decades and just never met in person. That's well put. I'm sure Rush would just want us all to get on with our lives and just do the things that make America great, yet the lack of any kind of public memorial service feels like a wound that was never dressed properly and hasn't healed right. Well, this is really, this is really good. One of my favorite stories about Rush is in Chapter 2 of Righteous Indignation by Andrew Breitbart, who I knew really well, about how Orson Bean introduced Andrew to Rush and how he started listening to Limbaugh while driving as a courier. I had a job delivering pizzas at about that same point in time and grew to appreciate Rush in the same manner as Breitbart did. And if you check the calendar, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Breitbart's passing too. We are, in fact, I've, I've mentioned that a couple times. Breitbart, um, actually, the script to sell the animation opens with Breitbart talking about downstream and culture. Uh, and it's been 10 years, of February 29th, 2012. So it's been a decade without him. Um, I, I have met Rush and I had the singular 
shock and thrill of having him say he really liked the work I was doing, um, which is surreal. It's like Burt Rutan, you know, it's like hanging out with Burt Rutan. I'm going to go to go into Oshkosh with Burt frickin' Rutan. We're going to talk about airplanes. Not only are you going to do that, you're going to fly out there in his, in his uh, starship. Okay, well, that's, that's not something I expected. Um, so, uh, when, when Andrew died, I got the news uh, from Jeremy Boring, and I was not at all surprised. Almost a year to the day earlier, I've told this story before, but it's been a while. Uh, almost a year to the day earlier, Jeremy were sitting. Jeremy and I were sitting over at Declaration Entertainment, which became Daily Wire, in to, at least in terms of location. And um, and we were both really worried about Andrew because we thought he was really getting dangerously uh, stressed. So we called him up. Uh, and we said, hey, Andrew, how you doing? Uh, I'm good, because this was back when the organization that may or may not have existed was really reaching its peak, and Andrew was a big part of that, big part. And so, basically, we said, hey, man, let's, let's, let's go get a bite to eat. We haven't hung out for a while. And so we did. We went uh, to a barbecue place in Burbank, which is not terribly good barbecue, but it's about to get, take what you can get in California. And Andrew came in, and his iPad was on, and the first thing he said to me as he came in, he said, you see this latest thing that I've done? And I just, I just said, Andrew, I don't, give a, I don't give a damn about the latest thing that you've done. You know, I really don't care. I'm in this business myself. I don't need to, I, 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 I watch everything you do, or at least as much of it as I can. I'm not here to talk about, about what you did, put the iPad away. That's essentially what I remember happening. So we sat him down and told him we're worried about him. And he didn't argue. He basically said, no, you're right, you're right. I should be doing this, I should be doing that. Um, the next day, it truly was the next day, we get a call from Andrew, uh, Jeremy and I, and, um, and he's in the, uh, he's in, uh, the, uh, ICU at a hospital and he'd had a heart attack and he called us and said, it's not lost on me that last night you were warning me that I would have a heart attack if I didn't go on and I did have one, so... I just wanted to let you know, thank you, uh, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna change my ways. And he did for six months. He really did. Lost a lot of weight. Uh, I don't want to say he was a heavy drinker, but he's out socializing all the time. He basically started taking care of himself, and then the tide took him away. It just became too much. Andrew Breitbart was a guy who could drink from a fire hose. Uh, he he could. He, when I first met him in his in his den or his dungeon or whatever he had seven tvs on and they were all on different channels two of them were watching baseball games and cnn and fox and all this stuff i don't know how he did it but eventually he got carried up in it and when i did my piece on him i did a, an afterburner about him i know this is about rush but i'm trying to connect to that um i said twitter killed him or i should more accurately say in reflection that his inability to deal with Twitter killed him. Twitter was brand new 10 years ago. And Andrew was the kind of guy 
that would argue back against anybody. And so Andrew Breitbart would stay up till five in the morning arguing with some barista from, you know, Newark who called him a Nazi. Just, just kept on, just kept on going. Uh, and he never put it away. It was with him all the time. And, and, it, and it never, he never let it go. He never got a chance to decompress. And when uh, he was at a, at a restaurant, uh, and I've been in there many times, in, um, in Brentwood, I think, right off of Sunset Boulevard. And he's in there, and uh, he's eating, having dinner, apparently talking to people who are left-wingers and winning them over, too. And then he opened the door, went outside on the sidewalk, went down, and that was that. Um, and I was not surprised by that. A lot of people thought he'd been killed because of, uh, you know, some brand new story he was about to break. Ten years ago, I thought the idea of political murder just ridiculous. But like Donald Trump says, we're now six six months to a year. But of of Andrew Breitbart, I'm certain he was he was very sick for a long time. We knew people who saw him at CPAC. I think it was probably just before he died, uh, who said that. I mean, good friends of his and ours, who said that. Um, that when he came out, he went, invited him out to dinner, he came out to the cab and, and just walking from the front of the hotel to the cab, he was sweating and it was short of breath and he was gray, you know, he's just, he just, he, he was such a fighter that he, that he couldn't overcome, he couldn't overcome the fight, he couldn't walk away from anything. So that's what happened to him. Now, as far as Rush goes, uh, Rush obviously had a much bigger influence on a much larger group of people than um, than uh, Andrew did. Rush single-handedly kept the idea of conservatism alive for 20 years. I mean, really by himself, right? Really. And and since the main topic of what we've been talking about tonight has been the war between the elites and the regular people, Rush was crazy successful because for the first time the regular people had something on the radio someone on the radio that would that would say what they were feeling and not what the people who hated them were feeling. Um, and so he became a phenomenon. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, Patrick. I, I don't know if this will help you or not. Um, I, I certainly miss him. My favorite story about Rush is the thing I liked about Rush is the thing I liked about P.J. O'Rourke. And that was that, um, was that Rush understood that he had that he would that he was not only not ashamed of this that he was actually proud of it my favorite story which I've said many times I didn't hear it firsthand I heard about it my favorite story about Rush Limbaugh is he says I was uh, traveling to a golf uh, golf tournament I felt like going to a golf tournament I was invited so I got into um, EIB1 excellence of broadcasting it was his private jet I got into EIB1 was making my way from my home in Florida towards Texas and I realized that I left my favorite driver back at home my favorite uh, you know driver for the golf course and so I decided, you know what, I would really like to have that. So I had somebody go to my house, pick it up, and take it to the airport where they put it upon EIB2, his other private jet, and sent it after him. And I heard this and I thought, how... I was flabbergasted. And, 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 and the reason I was flabbergasted was for the reason that I was constantly flabbergasted by Rush Limbaugh, because Rush Limbaugh was, was openly saying the things that I believe in, but he was saying it out loud, and he didn't care. He didn't care. I am going to take my private jet to a to 
uh, uh, golf, which according to the left is the most pointless activity of all time, and you may be right about that. Uh, but not only am I going to take my private jet to this thing, but I forgot something, so I'm going to send my second private jet to bring this thing to me. You know, the way that Hollywood executives sent a private jet to deliver flowers to his girlfriend in Aspen. That's a true story. That kind of guy is immortal. And I, and I, and I mean that sincerely. I, I, I mean that, I won't say literally, but I mean it seriously. So I don't know if this is of any um, help to you, but I, I don't, I miss him, but I don't grieve for him and I don't mourn him because Rush Limbaugh changed the world. Rush Limbaugh had an enormous effect on the history of the country that he loves. Enormous effect. And if you can say that you did that at the end of your life, then that's just, that's just as good as it gets. I, I can, I can imagine a bit of what Russia's life must be like only because I have a much, 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 much smaller slice of the pie, but nevertheless, it's the same pie. So even though I have a much thinner slice of it, it's still the same delicious pie. And when people say that, you know, Bill, you've changed my life, or, or occasionally people said I was thinking about committing suicide and I heard you talk about your depression or so on, there's nothing like that in the world. Nothing like it. Because we all go through this life hoping to have some meaning, hoping to have some, some, hoping to have made it worth it, you know. And when, when you think about what he accomplished, and, and more importantly than this, what he saw that he had accomplished. Because unlike some people, Rush lived long enough to see what he had accomplished. And Donald Trump uh, presenting him the, the Medal of Freedom on national TV where nobody could avoid it. And having him stand up there, well, that was... And just imagine what that must be like for Rush, to have the President of the United States bring you into the State of the Union uh, address in the House of Representatives and point you out and have you stand up and show you the, the Medal of Freedom you just put around your neck. If you can go through life like that um, and achieve that, that's a happy man. And, and he... He knew he was going, and he faced it the same way that uh, that another man I admire very much did. Uh, um, you know, I just think that that kind of courage is really important. Norm Macdonald never said a word about being sick. He'd occasionally make a joke about somebody having a disease, but he never said, I've got cancer. He's had it for years. And, and, and I saw some of the very last interviews he did, because fans would call him, and he'd call them back and talk to them for five or ten minutes. And you could tell that Norm... Norm wasn't happy about this, and he, and, and he may have been putting on a little bit of a happy face to cover, you know, whatever fear you would naturally feel, but nevertheless, that's, a, that's dignity. And, and, and Norm knew that he had made an impression on comedians. He was a comedian's comedian, and people loved him. And that's as good as it gets, Patrick. It doesn't get better than that. To be acknowledged by your peers and people you admire and respect is the ultimate high. And if you can say also that you managed to uh, do some good in, in an area that you worked your life on, he's a lucky, 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 lucky man. He's a very, well, he's not lucky at all. He worked very hard for it, a happy man.
happy man. He died happy. And uh, we all got to go sometime. And uh, when that time comes, I wish I, I hope that I can have a fraction of the satisfaction that, that Rush Limbaugh must have felt and, and never displayed because unlike people like Bill Maher or the rest of them, Michael Moore, he was not, he had a, he had a big ego, but big ego, but the ego wasn't about himself. It wasn't, it wasn't an ego about himself. It was an ego about the idea. He could laugh at himself. And as somebody pointed out a minute ago, he was, you know, they, they were, they put him on family guy. Um, and they did it to make fun of him. And, and by the time they were done, you know, he's friends with, uh, what's his name? Oh, come on. Is it Sean? Oh, come on. I don't want to have somebody tell it to me. McFarland. Seth. Uh, Seth McFarland brought him on to make fun of him and to mock him. And by the time he was done with Rush, he, he really liked him. And that's the experience I mentioned earlier in the show where, where Matt Walsh was there and a guy who had come there to protest him and get all the hate listened to him and said, it's not a bad guy at all. That's why they tell such lies about us that when we simply show up, that's it. They, they, they realize, well, you're not the the monster that you were made out to be. No, I'm not. And then people start thinking, well, if they were wrong about you and I believed it, maybe there's other things that I believe that they were wrong about, either intentionally or not. I realize we're not going to get to Facebook tonight, gang. I'm, I will finish up on the um, on the members thing. Sorry about that, but I'm going to have to put a second show in the mix. I'm going to have to do two of these. I just don't know when exactly, but I will do it. Uh, Lynn Dennett, hello from Japan. Hello, Lynn, and hello, Japan. These kind of things are just tremendous to me. Every time I hear somebody from, uh, from, they get this in Japan? I, by the way, I talked an awful lot about the Japanese earlier in the show. The reason I talk about them so much is because I admire them so much. Uh, I don't admire the militaristic culture that, that took over, uh, in between the wars, but talk about ingenuity and, and guts. And, 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 you know, what? Remarkable people and, 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 and so civilized and so clean, you know, just clean. Aesthetically clean, physically clean. I admire them very much. Just wanted to get that out. I usually catch the replay on YouTube uh, due to the time difference. If you do get a chance to answer, I was wondering who you would cover in America's Forgotten Heroes Volume 2 if I had a chance to make it. Uh, I think about that quite a bit, too. Um, uh, I think the first name that comes to mind is Calvin Coolidge. I've heard so many people say he's just an astonishing guy. Um, he'd be one. Billy Mitchell, I think, would be one. Most people don't know who Billy Mitchell is. Uh, he'd be there. Uh, and now that I think about it, Rush Limbaugh would be a good uh, uh, candidate for that. I have to tell you, in all honesty, it's not a it's not a huge list that comes to me. Um, because many of them, I guess, are forgotten. Here's the problem with that with with that with that particular show, Lynn. When I was thinking about people, candidates, 
it wasn't that they did one thing. Otherwise, Audie Murphy would have been right, right on the top of the list, and Carlos Hathcock, and they, they would have been right there. But the thing I was, uh, U.S. Grant is a possibility. The thing that I was, um, uh, thank you, Stephen. See, that kind of thing just, thank you. I'm not even going to mention it, but thank you. Uh, but back to your question, um, I, I wanted it to be about people who had a lifespan of, of achievement. And John Paul Jones certainly did. Frank Luke really accomplished all of his glory in the space of a month, but his backstory was so interesting and so uh, unusual and so also so perfect. The fact that this guy who who was doing everything to get in the fight was considered a coward by his... Uh, Frank Luke would go on a patrol and then Frank Luke would just fly away. He'd fly away because he was looking for a fight, but everybody else thought he flew away because he'd want an excuse to not get in the fight. I thought that was interesting. Um, let me see. Uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was a tough one, and then I realized it wasn't just Gettysburg. You know, he did the, the, the salute of the Confederates at the end, and, and he was fought throughout the whole war, so that got him in. Uh, Dick Rutan, again, if, 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 if Dick had been, if Dick had flown around the world once, it is an amazing achievement, but that would have been a bit problematic for the same reason that Audie Murphy was problematic, because it can't be... It wasn't about an act of heroism. It was about a person. It was about a hero. Uh, and I thought, personally, I thought the stuff on the, on the Dick Rutan segment about, about Misty, about being a fastback controller in, in Vietnam, I thought that was, to me personally, much more interesting and certainly more heroic than the extraordinarily interesting and heroic thing that he did that, that made him really famous. Uh, in the comments section, I'm seeing a couple names here. Ben Franklin, you know, I am, I don't know how to explain this other than to explain it. I am prejudiced against Ben Franklin because of how he looks. And I always have been, always. I've always just thought about Ben Franklin like, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's not. It's not even reasonable. I'm perfectly willing to admit it. But it, but there's just something about him. And 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 every time I'd hear about him, it's all penny save is a penny earned. All right, you know. Uh, um, I'll tell you one person that was on the short list for the first round, and that was um. Give me a second. Norman Borlaug. Because Norman Borlaug saved billions of lives. He's an American agronomist. And he was an American agronomist his whole life. And I thought, the only problem with this is, how do I make watching wheat grow compelling? Um, so that was uh, a problem, but he certainly deserved to be on the list, and, and I'm sure if I'd gotten deeper in his life, you know. Uh, but Lifetime Achievement Awards are, are rare, you know, and hard. Uh, Neil Armstrong certainly would have made the list, but it's America's Forgotten Heroes. He couldn't exactly say he's forgotten, at least not yet. This, I was looking for people that had a lifetime of heroism and, and, and courage and, and devotion to their country, and who were not terribly well-known. Uh, 
Speaking of Borlaug, uh, Marisha said it could have been done similar to Mendeleev. Uh, he also could have been done similar to the way I did um, Booker T. Washington, which I was very proud of. Uh, um, but Booker T. Washington had a lifetime. Uh, I'm trying to think also, Jimmy Doolittle had a lifetime. Ernest Evans had a lifetime. He had a moment, but again, a lot of the stuff I liked about Ernest Evans was I liked the fact that in the very first days of the war, he was in a, in a fight as an officer in, in the uh, Battle of the Java Sea where the Japanese whipped us. He survived that, whipped us. They ran away and they said, I'm never running away again. And that was interesting to me. And that was interesting when he launched um, USS Johnson as the commander, when he had a commission. And it was interesting when he was uh, in the in the island campaign. I remember if it was Guam or Saipan, I think it was Guam. He would bring his destroyer in so close to shore that they would take pistol fire from the Japanese on, on land. And guys on the ship would get their 45s out and shoot back. That's how close he got his destroyer there. Because he wanted to be a Marine, I think, originally. And he, um, he basically said that. Now... John Pershing said Jimmy Stewart, and that is a, actually, that is a, that's a winner right there. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is, uh, is, is a, a great, great, great example. Um, because Jimmy Stewart, and, and apparently so did Clark Gable, and, and so did virtually everybody. But Jimmy Stewart is a great example because Jimmy Stewart went and risked his life after he got famous. Usually it's the other way around. John Wayne is another good example. John Wayne, I think, is it, John Wayne would be a great example. John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, both of them, I think, deserve it. Because they had an entire career in show business, but the effect that they had on the country was monumental. There were rumors that Stalin had put out a hit on John Wayne, and apparently there's some evidence that that's really true. Uh, everybody wanted to be like John Wayne. The guys who, who went ashore on Iwo Jima wanted to be like John Wayne. Uh, Cary Grant, I think, uh, Archibald something or other, his real name, uh, said, I want to be like Cary Grant. It's a, it's a character. But, but Jimmy Stewart is interesting from a, uh, he's interesting from a uh, professional point of view because his, his film career really went in two different directions. He started out as this young American boy next door kind of thing, you know. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He's the all-American kid. He's kind of lanky. He's got a bit of a drawl, you know, and all that other stuff. Uh, and, um, and then later, he becomes very different, you know. The, the, the Jimmy Stewart of Vertigo and, and all the rest of that stuff was a, was a very different character. But he didn't just go and fly a combat mission. He was up there all the time. He was very Archibald Leach. Thank you. Uh, he was um, he was really he put his life at risk, uh, and and it's always nice when you can have some kind of a personal uh, connection, even if it's a, a secondhand minor one. So here's my personal connection with Jimmy Stewart. When I got to Los Angeles in 1988, the first job I got within two or three days was a, a, was a temp. Went to a temp agency. And they assigned me to Enterprise Rent-A-Car in Beverly Hills on Robertson Boulevard. 
and my job was to go and pick up or drop off people whose cars had been put in the shop. Enterprise had a policy, which I thought was great, um, uh, where we'll pick you up. That was the ad campaign. So that meant that somebody from Enterprise Rent-A-Car had to go out into Beverly Hills and pick up people to bring them in to rent a car, and that's what I did. Um, and on my first day, I went to pick up a guy, and and I don't, I'm virtually positive that he lived on the Beverly Hillbillies Street, you know, just the rows of palm trees. If it wasn't that street, it was one right next to it. He was, yeah, I, I'm I'm looking around, I'm like I'm, I'm in freaking Beverly Hills, and there's the Beverly Hills sign, and there's the Beverly Hillbillies palm trees. I can see them right there. So I go to pick this guy up, and I and I knock on the door, and he says, "I'll be right down," and I'm out there waiting by the car, and um, and I'm looking around, and uh, I see this bus come by, and the bus stops, and stops in front of this house, and it's filled with people, residential area, and off to one side, there's a relatively modest house. It certainly was not ostentatious anyway. It's this house on this boulevard. And, and the curtains part, and, and somebody leans forward and waves to the people in the bus. And then the bus moves on. And the guy comes out and I said, do you know what that was all about, the, the bus thing? He said, yeah, that, that's Jimmy Stewart. Really? He said, yeah. I said, well, uh, one of these Hollywood tour star see the homes of the stars buses just stop right in front of his house and he came to the window and waved and the guy said he always does that and i thought yeah of course he does that's that's the main thing i admire about jimmy stewart he said this on the tonight show all the time he said i have the most amazing life in the world i i i feel this way myself personally i, I I can't believe that people pay me to do these things and, and, and these are things that I would have done, that I would have paid them for. And so since they make this possible, the least that I can do is show them some respect and, 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 and gratitude and affection. So any time that a bus pulled up outside of Jimmy Stewart's house and he was aware of it, he'd go to the window and wave, which made their day and made my day because I got to see Jimmy Stewart. I didn't. I was far enough away that I didn't know who he was, but I got to see him wave to people, and I thought, that's a good man. It's a good man, and he was, so he would definitely be in there. Um, I'm going to move on here because we got a lot of questions, but uh, hopefully we got a couple of them there, and it's interesting to think about, and I'd like to, uh, I'd like to do another series uh, sooner or later. Uh, Marusha Dark again, as a follow-up to your video on shame. I did a virtue signal on shame. The difference between guilt and shame. Uh, I think guilt is weaponized shame. And anyway, uh, Scott Adams has predicted on multiple occasions that a day will come when humanity voluntarily surrenders the entire concept of privacy as a norm and simply stops trying to defend it or pretend that it even exists. Not that the government will forcibly remove us per se, although that's still a concern, but that we ourselves will do this from the bottom up. Given the state of the world and where we're heading, I'm finding it harder and harder to disagree with him. Many will happily give up their personal data on social media in exchange for 15 minutes of fame or even nothing at all. They raise no hue and cry when Trump gets spied on or when the CCP and the World Economic Forum roll out social credit systems. Half a generation's worth of people seem to lack shame, modesty, self-awareness, and reverence insofar as they not only voluntarily post photos and videos of themselves engaged in the most base and lewd sexual activities or worse, 
but many of them are in fact proud of it and celebrate it as though they were doing something noble. Far more than the Orwellian future, I fear the Huxleyan future in which humanity surrenders its rights, morals, and standards of its own accord through change in social custom rather than top-down coercion, all in the pursuit of happiness. Is there a way to shame those who would who appear not to have any shame and prevent this prediction from unfolding? Love to hear your thoughts on this. Also, please try to get in touch with Sargon of uh, Akkad on, at the Lotus Eaters podcast. I'd be more worried about this if they weren't young. And, I, and, and the second thought I had was if there had been social media recording everything I did when I was in my teens and 20s, I would be appalled now. I would be appalled. One of the best lines I ever got off was that uh, somebody asked me, why are Republicans so old? And I said, well, it takes a while for life to beat the stupid out of you. And that is the, the general flow of things. Uh, a lot of people, I agree that people out there are doing things that previous generations would have found shocking and shameful. But when I was young, I do things that I now consider shocking and shameful, and I wasn't ashamed of them at the time. I am now. Uh, and I suspect that this is actually going to be worse for them because there's going to be visit video evidence. Look, you know, these, these girls that are like, you know, webcam girls and stuff, they're eventually going to have kids. Eventually they will. And at least some of those kids are going to find that out. And that is not going to be pleasant for mom, I don't suspect. Um, as far as I can remember, Marusha, you know, when I was... In my, in my teens and 20s, there were wet t-shirt contests in Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And I don't see that as much different. I do think that the, that the women that, um, I do think that the women that participated in those things had, had a, seemed like they were having a real good time. But I think that they are exceedingly grateful that it was not recorded the way it's recorded now. Um, and so, uh, you know, in order to have shame, you have to have remorse and you have to have some understanding that you've done something that runs against your morals. And, and if you don't have any morals, then it's tough to feel shame. And speaking for myself and for many other people, I think um, that uh, that a fair amount of that, and it's right, you're right to be worried about it. I worry about it too, but I think a fair amount of that is just the exuberance of youth. Uh, Mopal Moto in the comments section said it all started with Girls Gone Wild. Marusha Dark says, yes, this. Uh, Girls Gone Wild, um, uh, was a cultural phenomenon. Uh, and the guy who did it made a lot of money. I guess he ended up in jail. For those of you that don't remember Girls Gone Wild, there was a period, I want to say it was the 90s, where um, every other commercial on late night TV was for Girls Gone Wild, latest episode, you know, cheerleaders gone crazy and you know, cheerleaders on, on spring break. And basically it was just softcore porn. It was just, it was just girls taking their clothes off. Um, and they made tons of money, tons of money. But again, it all tends to blur after a while, but I'm, I'm wanting to say that it is, um, it is pre-internet entertainment, right? So, now, if you want to see uh, uh, naked girls, you can just click on a button right next to the button you're watching right now and see all the naked girls you want to, and a lot more than that, too. But at the time, it was, I think it was, I think it just, I think Girls Gone Wild made porn res respectable, made it mainstream. It was, it was openly advertised on TV. And, um, 
and it looked like they were having a good time. Um, and it was, you know, it was, I'm sure a lot of, the, in fact, uh, when the guy got in trouble, a lot of the women who were participating in it um, sobered up and realized that they'd signed contracts uh, that had allowed them uh, to use this footage that they were pretty much unaware of. So did it start it? I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Um, but this is like, you know, by the way, I'll tell you where this leads me, because this is an interesting question. We've done a couple shows about profanity. And I was doing an interview and I was talking, I think I was doing an interview, I was saying my favorite show of all time was uh, Deadwood and, and my favorite character of all time is uh, Al Swearingen. And that the language on that show it was the most profane show in history, and I don't think it can be surpassed. Stay with me on this. David Milch was asked about this. Did these did these miners in Deadwood actually say, you know, F you and, and you, you horrible CS and all the rest of it? And he said, no, they didn't say that. But because it was such a dangerous place, they did use the strongest language that they had. And the strongest language that they had might have been, damn you, you, you son of a bitch. He said... In today's world, that is not the strongest language that we had. And if we had the 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 if we had Al Swearingen saying damn this or damn that, then it would not have seemed profane because we have a whole spectrum of things beyond that. And he said, and I thought this speaking as artistically as a as a as a writer, I thought this was one of the most profound things I'd ever heard somebody say. He said, so no, they didn't use the words that we use, but they used the most harsh language that they had, and that's what we're doing, and that's why we think it, it feels real. I thought, that's a grand argument. I buy it completely. Um, but here's the thing, and I've thought about this quite a bit recently. Society gets more and more profane. That's undoubtedly true. But where do you go from here? In other words, I don't, I don't, I can't think of, I was thinking about this the other day. I cannot think of any language that would shock me. I don't think the words exist because I've heard so much of the F-bombs and, and it, it's so much everywhere. It's so, it's so common in the vernacular. Where do you go from there? I don't, I don't, I don't know. But, but if you were, if you were saying damn, and and stuff then the s word you know was taking a risk and then the f word was like the nuclear weapon but but where do you go from here how do you make it more profane than it is now i don't see how it's possible and that actually is in a way it's kind of encouraging it's like asymptotic you like you run up against the limits of of uh depravity um you you i, I think you're running into when you deal with things like you know cam girls or cam guys or whatever, you're running up against the 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 theoretical limit of shameful things to do. Where do you go from there? You know, where? I don't know. I think um, I I I I don't see it. Uh, let me. Re I'll just end it by saying this: I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine language that would make me clutch at my pearls. I just, I can't. Uh, 
I, I just I have not heard the words. I don't think they exist, and I don't think they can be invented. I think we're I think we're at maximum. We're rapidly approaching maximum profanity, saturation profanity, where there is no longer. You have to put in more and more effort to get less and less results. Uh, Charles Tomes, that would be C.P. Tomes, I would imagine. I just saw or miraculously heard, since I ignore ads, Devo, it's a good thing, extended version as the only audio for the next golf tournament on ESPN ad was on Fox News. Good or bad that 40 years on, fringe, alternative, possibly offensive music, it's an interesting con uh, con uh, coincidence, I heard Whip It in an ad a while back, is used in mainstream ads. Think about the fringe, alternative, possibly offensive music that's been released recently, misogynist, racist, violently anti-police. Any thoughts? Oh yes, Monkey Boys are definitely in the building. Edited for old guys' eyeballs. I realized the default font was 11.0, so he's used large type, and I'm, I'm getting there myself. Um, uh, I posted on Facebook somebody doing... Uh, I think it was an NWA song. I think it was F the Police. And they did it like polka fashion, where it was like Oktoberfest and the guys in the Lederhosen, you know, and the, da, 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 they did it as a polka. And I went to the website because that was brilliant. I, and, I, and I listened to them. They, they did a number of these things where they would take modern language and just completely change it. But, uh, but that was really, really clever. And, and I thought, um, let me see if I can find no, I'm not, because if I put it in, you're going to mess up our whole monetization, all the rest of this stuff. Um, but I thought that was actually extremely subversive, very subversive, because it made them look silly. It really did, it, and, and it was really brilliantly edited, you know? And and you've got these you got these guys, you know, you got Ice Cube and these guys, and they're, and they're, they're, they're going down the street, and they're all such badasses, and then dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, boom, it's like... You've defanged them. You've taken away uh, the 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 glamour of them, and glamour in the traditional term meaning like a a, a spell that's cast over you. Um, uh, two live crew, didn't they do? Um, oh, me so horny, wasn't that it? The, right after that, there was a song that came out called uh, by a band called uh, Two Live Jews, and it was called. Uh, Oh, it's so, oh, it's so humid. Oh, it's so humid. Oh, it's so humid. Oh, it's so humid. It's like a sauna in here. You know, the revenge is a best a dish, a dish best served uh, with an accordion. Um, if you read this, use a pseudonym for me. Use Darth Chuck. Mentioned this earlier. Uh, at the beginning, so I just now see the question. Uh, Darth Chuck just bought home an oxygen bottle for my wife. Chicom virus strikes again. 85.90 pulse oxygen seems to have peaked yesterday, so I've got that going for me. I've been ionized, but I'm okay now. I, that's a line from Buckaroo Banzai. Um, I, I mentioned it briefly earlier, uh, but um, it's a serious business. And, uh, and I, I'm not the guy to talk to. There are a number of people who, who are better to talk to about this than I am. 
but I have heard massive doses of vitamin D are, are extremely useful and um, and uh, for us it was just two weeks of it got bad and then it got really bad and then it stayed really bad and then suddenly it got considerably better now Natasha told me the other night it was because we took some medication from special medication you know horse dewormers and aquarium cleaners but we took this very very late at the end of two weeks so we couldn't prevent it but she said it really made a big difference for me the thing I remember was feeling much better the day after I got some fluids after I got three IV bags of fluids after being so dehydrated um, but uh, Darth um, keep us posted on this please uh, we, we worry an awful lot about about the family here you know the big family and um, if there's anything I could do, uh, you can always reach me at info at billwhittle.com. And I know that goes for everybody in the comment section here and all our regulars and people at billwhittle.com, all of that. Um, I'm quite sure that um, if you uh, post some sort of contact information either on the website or in the live comment stream, I wouldn't do it someplace where it's permanent, like on YouTube or whatever, uh, that anybody who, who could help will help um, and there are many people who are much more up on what can be done at, at each particular stage. Uh, oxygen bottle is serious, uh, but it's, it's smart. You know, it's, it's the smart thing to do. If, if it seems to have peaked yesterday, then that's good. Uh, and if you're watching this live, if you're one of the 69 people watching live, he just in the comment section posted his email. Um, uh, these medicines have been, um, he, he says he needs an oxygen meter. He's, he said it's, uh, 85 to 90 pulse oxygen. Sounds like he's got a pulse oximeter to me. Uh, the, um, the, the, the great crime of our age I think will be eventually written about one of their one of these days, and that will be the the fact that their certain knowledge, to an absolute certainty, that there there are a number of drugs, inexpensive drugs, that mitigate or eliminate the symptoms of virtually all of this stuff, and that the reason that they were suppressed, I always wondered about the reason. I always thought, why would you? Go after Trump so hard after the you know the um, hydroxychloroquine thing. Why are you going after that guy in New York who said he's had 600 patients, three of them in the hospital, and one died, and the one that died is the one who didn't take um, the medicine the way I told him to? Why would you be against that? And what I found out very recently is that I'd known that they had changed that, that they had written laws that protect insurance companies, sorry, pharmacy, big pharmacies, big pharma protects big pharma. And basically says that you can sue them for damages except in the case of a vaccine because vaccines are essentially emergency and the law cut out a, 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 a get out of jail free card where if it is a vaccine, you cannot um, uh, sue them. And here's the thing I didn't know until about two, three weeks ago. In order for them to get 
the emergency approval for the vaccine, one of the conditions, which is a sensible condition, was if we're going to give you this emergency approval of this vaccine and make you essentially legally uh, immune, to pardon the expression, they said in order for you to get that, you have to show that there are no other therapies available. In other words, the law was written in a very sensible way. I don't particularly have a problem with that law, at least I didn't before all this, but basically in order to be classified as, in order to avoid legal ramifications, you have to be classified as a vaccine. In order to be classified as a vaccine and get the emergency uh, uh, release or whatever, you had to show that there are no other treatments available. And so that's why these alternative treatments had to be um, removed. Not only removed, not only discredited publicly, which what the media did, they did it, they went after Joe Rogan real hard on this because Joe Rogan came out and said, not only did I get it, I sailed through it and these are the medications that I was given and poof, a nothing burger essentially. Okay, well, you can't have that because if it becomes common knowledge that these drugs are out there and they're inexpensive and they work, even if they help and they're not doing any harm, it's not a question of it's not a question of people not taking or buying the vaccine. It's, a, it's what really drove the thing was you wouldn't have the legal immunity if there were other therapies. And these other therapies, therefore, had to be destroyed in order to get the legal protection that would allow them to sell all these vaccines. Um, uh, somebody here has mentioned, I'm not going to mention the name, that they have a, uh, three bottles of antibiotics for fish tanks. Uh, I read this by happy coincidence just a week ago, or less. You can go down to a pet store and buy antibiotics for your fish. And, uh, and you buy as many bottles of those as you want. And they are identical to the antibiotics that you would get with the prescription. And that people in the know know this. And, uh, and have stocked up uh, in, in the event that they ever happen to query him. Um, okay. Uh, Marusha said, my antibiotics are with my guns at the bottom of the lake. These boating accidents, they, they, they're really getting out of hand. I mean, really, we, we really do need some, some basic seamanship lessons in this country because the amount of things that are going overboard these days are really just shocking. Um, but, and the reason I found out about this was because uh, two, three nights ago, I decided I would finally look up something that I constantly just keeps brushing against my mind. Sometimes I'll imagine, um, you know, that kind of Confederate Yankee and King Arthur's court thing, and I'll think, man, if I went back to the 1500s, how much could I accomplish, and how much could I accomplish in the 1800s, and so on. And one of the first thoughts I had was that I know that bread mold kills bacteria inside the body. I know that. I don't know how to do it but I know that it can be done. And so basically I looked up how, how is penicillin made? And it turns out you can make your own penicillin, but it also turns out that it is a very, very, very difficult time-consuming process and that in order to get enough of the stuff, you've got to be essentially a, a, brew, a brewery. Um, but just knowing that is, is, it, is it. And, and there, are, there are preppers out there who, um, who are prepared to do that, which I think is grand. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, there are two questions on page two before I sign off. Well, I didn't see them, uh, but I will 
Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to page two. Thank you very much. There's one from Arusha and there's one from Eduardo. Okay. Uh, the Marusha question, did you see the DHS website talking about MDM? Uh, I know what DHS is, I don't know what MDM is. Uh, Brett Weinstein did some great analysis on it this week, might be for a good MBA, MB2A video in particular, check out the section on rumor control of graphic novels uh, on uh, the bottom under resources. Yeah. Um, MDM is uh, misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. In other words, uh, if I understand the, the question correctly, they're trying to criminalize uh, discussion. They're trying to say that, um, that if you disagree with us, you're wrong and you're lying, and if you're lying, that means you're a terrorist. Yes, DHS is Department of Homeland Security. So yeah, so they're basically trying to criminalize discussion of this very subject, and for the very same reason that I just mentioned. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars here. So if you are Joe Rogan and you talk about something and you've got a big audience like he does, uh, and you say, um, hey, this seemed to work, then you can't have that. And, and as we found out recently, Joe Rogan's got enough uh, social clout that, that it's tough to cancel him. And so now the government is trying to criminalize discussions here. This is from the DHS's own website. Misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation make up what CISA, uh, C-I-S-A, defines as information activities. While this type of content is released by, when this type of content is released by foreign actors, it can be referred to as foreign influence. Definitions for each are below. Misinformation is false, but not created or shared with the intention of causing harm. In other words, you're wrong, but you don't know you're wrong. Disinformation is deliberately created to mislead, harm, or manipulate a person, social group, organization, or country. And malinformation is based on fact, but used out of context to mislead, harm, and manipulate. Foreign and domestic threat actors, who would those domestic threat actors be, I wonder, use MDM campaigns to cause chaos, confusion, and division. These malign actors are seeking to interfere with and undermine our democratic institutions and our national cohesiveness. Actually, the Democrats have done a pretty good job of that on their own. Um, the resources provided at the bottom of this page provide examples and more information about MDM activities. So I'm going to be hearing a lot more about MDM in the future. And this is the attempt of a totalitarian state to criminalize language because uh, given the definitions, the definitions of those things, everything I've said can be defined as one of those three. So that makes me a domestic terrorist, makes me a, 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 a threat vector. And I am a threat vector, and I'm proud of it. And, um, and this is the nice thing about, about having led a good life, you know, and not being terribly afraid of dying. I'm not particularly worried about this, but at the same time, you know, I've had a good, I've had a very good life, and I'm not talking about, I, I don't, what I'm saying by this is I'm not saying I get bumped off. What I'm saying is there's not much these people can do to harm me or threaten me and put me in jail conceivably if things continue along this path. But again, the more of that they do, the more of that they do, the more submarine surfaces, and the more it surfaces, the the, the more finished they are. Um, I'll tell you this: there are a couple of thought experiments I've performed on myself 
because I self-experiment when I can't find uh, subjects who will, will sign a release. And two of them are this. One of them is, is there enough money in the world to buy you? Is there a check that could be written to buy you, to make you put out, suddenly say, you know what, I was wrong about the communist Chinese, and I realize now, is there a, is there a check big enough to buy me? And I'm in, you know, I'm in perpetual financial straits. Uh, and the answer is no. There, there is no amount of money you could write. Really, if you wrote your check for $100 billion, you'd turn it down? I would. I would turn it down. And I've thought about this enough to give this serious consideration, not just something I'm saying or bragging about. Many of you are the same way. How much would it cost for you to go against your, your deep beliefs? Well, it's like that argument, you know, uh, from, I think, 1800s or early 1900s British, some British, it might have been Noel Coward, or it was somebody like Noel Coward. And he was having this conversation with this young woman, and essentially whoever it was said, would you, would you sleep with me for a thousand pounds, which at the time was years income, two years income. She said, well, for a thousand pounds? Yes, I suppose I would. Was it Churchill? Okay. And then he said, well, what about for one pound? And she says, what kind of girl do you think I am? And he said, I already know what kind of girl you are. We're just trying to settle on a price. And that is, that sounds like something Churchill would say, right? Um, Astronaut said, once you have 100 billion, you could change your mind. Well, assuming that you even could do that, I love China. I get $100 billion. I was just kidding about loving China. In order for me to get the $100 billion, I'd have to be convincing. And if I was convincing about my love for the Chinese Communist Party all of a sudden, then I would lose the respect of everybody who's watching this now. And I'd be $100 billion richer, but I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I wouldn't be able to face myself. So, um, uh, there is no amount of money that could buy me. Now, don't get me wrong. There are there are plenty amounts of money to get me to do things that I either am in favor of, which I end up doing anyway, or things that I'm more or less agnostic about. You know, I drive a Camaro. If somebody paid me a million dollars to to do an ad for a Ford Mustang, I'd do it. I don't like the Mustang compared to the Camaro, but I'd do it. It's not it's not going to cause any damage. Um, and, and the, the, the answer to that is no. And the second thing I thought about is, which is certainly much more likely to happen, and that is, would, is there enough social pressure to get me to apologize for something that I knew I was not wrong about? And, and I genuinely believe the answer to that is no as well. Uh, these are the things I do in my spare time. I just think about these things in the shower. I think about them before I go to bed. I think about them driving to work. Is there enough pressure that could be put on me to make me apologize for something that I said that I knew was true? And no, there is no amount of social pressure. People throw bricks through my windows, we'll move somewhere else. Uh, I've been through this. I had the uh, pleasant experience of seeing um, my name as a scientific racist on the, cover, uh, on the electronic version of the Los Angeles Times, among a number of other newspapers of national note. And that was the most distraught I have ever been by a wide margin. I've never been that 
miserable before or since. But I got through that. And, and even then I had people telling me, well, congratulations, man. You know, you made the big time. Um, so, you know, simulation, the whole idea of simulation is to expose you to something that may happen to you and, and, and so that it's not a surprise, so that you know what to do when you have to do it. Training is like this too. Training is a form of simulation. Flight training in, in a real airplane is essentially flight simulation. When, it, when, a, when the instructor comes back on the power and says, oops, looks like you just lost an engine, that's a simulation of a power failure. And the reason we do that is so that we can be prepared in the unlikely event that this ever happens, or in the unlikely event of a water landing, or in the unlikely event that the cabin may lose pressure. Uh, but if those unlikely events happen, it's good to know what to do. And this is why I think about these things. I, I run them as simulations so that if this ever comes to me, I'll know what to do. I went through a period in my life, the beginning of this process, 2006 or seven or something. Uh, I had seen when I was a kid uh, in, in driver's ed in high school, the very idea of it now is just shocking to me. But when I was in high school, in driver's education, they showed us a number of 16 millimeter films which were generically known as hamburger on the highway. And they showed us, prior to us going to get our uh, driver's permits, actual accident scenes of absolutely uncensored red smears. Uh, Matt Harris said red asphalt. I'm trying to remember another one. I almost remember the name of one of them. Um, Mechanized Death, I think, was one of them. Uh, and, and the purpose of these films was to scare kids into driving safely. And I don't know if it scared me into driving safely, but I do know this. Of all of the people in that, in that class, I was the only one who got sick enough to have to leave the room. And, and I was embarrassed about that. And came a time in the, in the late 80s, 2008, nine, something like that, when I realized that this is a problem. And so I did something that is extremely unusual and very bill and, and you can think of it whatever you want. You can find it revolting or whatever. But basically I realized there could come a time when I, can, when I cannot afford to be incapacitated by seeing horrible things. So I went to the internet and I saw a lot of horrible things. I mean a lot, a lot of horrible horrible, horrible things. I have seen, I have seen uh, soldiers have their heads sawed off with a knife. Uncensored video. I've seen countless videos of people being necklaced, of, of, of thieves having a, a, a tire put around them and then soaked with gasoline and burning to death. I've seen people beaten to death in the streets. Um, I've seen uh, a lot of uh, video and film of airplane crash uh, survivors. Yeah, friggin' Chechnya. That's where I saw it, Lozario. That's, that's where I saw it, I saw it in Chechnya. Uh, I've seen all of it. And uh, yeah, women stoned. I've seen women stoned to death. Not the kind of culture you want to live in. And I did that to desensitize myself, not to the violence, but desensitize myself to the physical reaction to the violence. 
and I guess to some degree to the violence, because because I think about these things because I uh, because I, I I like to train for for the for the rest of my life. I like to train. I like to be ready for things, and I realize that no, this is a real potentially life-threatening weakness on your part. You cannot. There's, there could, there very likely could come a time when you are going to need to be able to keep your your uh, act together when there are scenes of carnage, almost certainly in a case of a car accident or whatever. Um, but uh, I realized I can't be squeamish about this, so I started watching these things, and the first ones made me sick. And 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 surely enough, you can get desensitized to this, and I don't think that's good. I don't think, needless to say, I don't think children should be seeing this. And I don't think it's for general consumption. I think it belongs where it belongs, which is in very dark and very hard to find corners of the internet. But if you know where to look or if you're persistent, you'll find it. Um, and I wanted to be prepared for it. And so that's why I did it. Um, and somebody pointed out here, uh, uh, Lazar uh, Lazario, L Lazarino, who's becoming a real champion here tonight. Uh, it's all painful, but it's important to appreciate the society we have broken or not. Amen. Amen. Uh, you want to you wanna get to appreciate America, you need to see videos of people who have been hacked to death with machetes lying in the streets and having people walk past them like, like it's just nothing. Just nothing. Like somebody left a, an old tarp on the side of the road. Or they'll give them a kick as they go by. You really need to see it. Um, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, I suppose some people could say that's very morbid. I didn't do it for morbid reasons. But I also do think that we are too isolated from reality and that, and that if you showed that question, if you showed some of those videos, especially back when we were dealing with Islam, if you'd showed some of those videos to people who are saying, oh, you're, you're Islamophobic, I'd say, I'm, I'm this, you know. And uh, uh, somebody pointed out in the comment section, uh, if you want to cure people of communism, you just show them the movie called The Czechist, which I, is for strong stomachs. Yeah, Daniel Pearl, all of that. And, and people like me, sheepdog type people need to see this stuff. We need to know what the reality of the world is. You, you, you need to know what happens to women who have been accused, who have been raped essentially, and then accused of infidelity. You need to see somebody stoned to death because they put them in white sheets and they bury them up to their waist. So they look like little sails. And then the reason they put them in, in absolutely whitest possible sheets is because the blood shows up better that way. And you just see these stones hitting, and you see somebody trying to defend themselves, and then these red stains start to spread, and then, okay, that's the reality outside of Disneyland that's made possible by the people that defend this country. Um, uh, yeah, the checkist full frontal nudity. And the reason there's full frontal male and female nudity is because the Cheka in the basement of the Lubyanka are killing hundreds of people a day, and they're just stringing them up like, just like sacks of barley and loading them into a truck, and they don't pull the punch. And they started off with the scene of that, and I thought, wow, that's powerful. But the genius of the Czechist was that they kept coming back to it. 
because it didn't stop after the first act. It just went on and on and on and on and on. Um, so, there you go. Uh, final question uh, is from Eduardo Enrique. Hello, uh, Eduardo, and also to your pseudonym. Uh, hey, Bill Wazer13 here. Have you ever seen the trailer for Amazon's Rings of Power? I have. The trailer is SJW shite, but there are over 100,000 comments of the Tolkien quote, evil is not capable of creating anything new. It can only distort and destroy what has been invented or made by the forces of good, J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, I have seen it and I have heard of it. Um, uh, when it was announced, it was announced that Amazon, well, first of all, Jeff Bezos said, I, Amazon needs a, a, a Game of Thrones. So they went to Lord of the Rings, which is the, the, the original that this god-awful copy was of Game of Thrones was made from. And I thought we were going to get the Lord of the Rings remade. And if there's ever a movie that does not ever need to be remade ever again, it's the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There's nothing you can do to improve upon that at all. Nothing. Because they use practical sets, practical actors, and they just can't improve on it. It's as good as it gets. You will never make that movie better. You'll just make it worse. And that's what I thought was happening. Um, I thought they were going to remake Lord of the Rings, but that's not what they're doing. They're actually doing something that's much more alarming to me, and that is they are telling a story that I think should have been told the right way, which is called the Silmarillion, which is which is what which is what Tolkien wrote after Lord of the Rings, and it's the whole backstory thousands of years before the Lord of the Rings. Because in the Lord of the Rings, they say the, the, it was the Third Age. Well, there was also a Second Age and a First Age. And all of that stuff, I've read all of it. And it is incredible good. Incredible good. Yes, this series is set in the Second Age. The Second Age is the Age of Numenor. The highlight, the, the Numenorians were humans who the, who the gods had favored. And they had an island kingdom called Numenor. And, uh, and... Eventually, Sauron came to them in the in the in the disguise of a very attractive guy, and basically got them into worshiping things. And then they started doing human sacrifice. And finally, the gods gets the gods had said, "You can you can have this paradise. We'll make this paradise. It's Atlantis." Yes, as Matt points out, this is it's Atlantis. You can have this paradise under one condition, and that is that you do not sail further west, out of sight of the island. You can go east back to Middle Earth all you want to, because Numenor existed out in in between Middle Earth, Numenor and then the realm of the elves and the gods. And they said, this is yours so long as you don't come sailing towards the island of the immortals. And guess what? Um, they did. Valinor, yeah. And so it's the story of the garden, right? It's like you get to live in this paradise and never die and never be sick and never get hungry. Just you don't, there's just one thing I'm asking, one thing only, and that's you don't get to touch that tree. So let's go touch the tree. It's human nature. And then the island is destroyed. And a few people can see it coming because they believe, because they took the, the, the gods at their word. And they prepared some uh, some boats. And uh, it was Elendil, who's the father of um, um, Isildur. A couple of these Numenorians escape in boats, just, just a handful. And they sail to Middle-earth. And they, they become the foundation of Gondor 
as well as the northern kingdom uh, and so on. So the first stage story is, is correct. It was corrected in the comment section for me. That's right. It's not about the first stage. The Silmarillion is the story of the elves and, and the, the elves going to war against one of the gods, which didn't turn out very well for the elves. Um, seven boats, seven stones, and one white tree. Yeah. So, uh, so it's tremendous, tremendous stuff. It's really just great. And they're going to make it. And they're going to make it. Well, I already know what they're doing. They are, they are turning Galadriel, who's essentially a minor character in the story, really not even in the story at all. She's in the first stage story. And she's in armor, and she's no longer a, a, a queen. She's now she's a she's a kick-ass warrior with a sword. Okay. And we might as well go there, you know. So they have black hobbits, and they have uh, and they have black elves, and all the rest of it. And I was thinking about this because uh, first saw this kind of thing in Star Trek Voyager, where you had a black Vulcan. And and I have a problem with that. And the reason I have a problem with that is is because Vulcans aren't black or white; they're green. And furthermore, and furthermore, if this whole thing, if this whole social justice woke thing wasn't driven by such actual racists, if I was writing Discovery, not Discovery, uh, Voyager, what I would have done is this. I would have cast white actors, or at least Caucasian-looking actors, as the Vulcans, because the Vulcans are essentially green, and the Andorians are blue, and all the rest of it. And what I would have done is I would have made it a point of wonder, a point of absolute wonder and astonishment and marvel that humans came in different shades. I would make that absolutely like this is one of the most astonishing things about your species. Absolutely astonishing. Is that, is that no two of you are the exact same color? All of us are blue, or or all of us are green, or all of us are, you know, hairy space apes, or whatever the case may be. But humans, you're all different colors. That's amazing. That's what I would have done, and 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 that would have been great. So, what it is is it is the inability of it is the inability of people of no talent to leave something alone that's better than they could ever do. Uh, Tolkien said, I wrote these things to give a mythological background to England, a non-Christian background because Christ came from the Middle East. I wanted, I wanted a mythology for England. And people in English times, uh, prior to the very, very present, are white people. It's a white person's mythology. And I don't have any problem with that. And I do have a problem with, with, I have the same problem with casting black elves as I would casting white or Asian guys in, in Black Panther, which is part of the tribe. What? Yeah, that red-haired guy over there with the freckles, pale guy. Yeah, he's a member of the, member of the tribe too, just like everybody else. In Africa. Yeah, yeah, all kinds of different colored people in Africa. Okay. Um, it's it's just stealing and and it and when you put your agenda ahead of the story 
it's over. Especially when you're dealing with an agenda this nasty and a story that good. So, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. Now, Wizard said, I want to see which studio has the balls to make a black Tarzan. I thought, I thought, I was glancing at it, and I thought it said a black buckaroo bonsai. And I would have said, I have no problem with the black buckaroo bonsai. Although, you couldn't call him buckaroo bonsai because buckaroo bonsai is a white guy. Just like James Bond is a white guy. Just like Malcolm X is a black guy. Or, or Zorro is a fictional character who is Spanish. You can't make Zorro into a Norwegian. Because that's not Zorro. That's something else. Um, so, you know, we need to um, we need to do it. Matt Harris says Tarzan means means white ape. Uh, I will close this three-hour show. Uh, and we didn't even get to the Facebook questions. I will close this three-hour show with another one of those interesting things. I might have mentioned this not too long ago, but I just thought it was cool. Uh, when I was in Norway, I was visiting a man who uh, grew up in Hollywood and, and played on, you know, these people had ranches. If you were a rich actor in the 30s, you know, in the 40s, uh, you, you could buy an awful lot of land in L.A. And he would just go over there and play. And, and he would play in one of the people whose house, whose yard he used to play on was Errol Flynn. So he knew an awful lot about old Hollywood. And he told me something that I never heard before and I just thought was really, really cool. He told me where the term for the Lone Ranger that Tonto uses comes from. Kimosabe. Yes, Kimosabe. Uh, it's always spelled K-I-M-O-S-A-B-E. And it's like, what does that mean? I guess it's just his Indian nickname. I guess he just invented it. It sounds Indian. Kimosabe. Yes, Kimosabe. It must be an Indian word that means something. That's not what it means. That's not where it came from. Kimosabe. This is how it was written. Who is the masked man? In Spanish, the answer to that is Quien no sabe. I don't know who it is. Quien no sabe. Who is this masked man? I don't know. Quien no, quien no sabe. And that's where Kimosabe came from. Isn't that cool? I love I just love that kind of stuff. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. It's it's like it's like it's like frosting for me. Uh, that's where Kimosabe came from. Who is that masked man? I don't know. Nobody knows. Kid no sabe. Nobody knows. Isn't that cool? Kid no sabe. There you go. All right, time for me to pack this thing up and go. It always takes me 45 minutes at least before I can go home after finishing these things. Yeah, yeah, you know, modify this thing and I upload it. Anyway. Um, but uh, I think I'm probably done. I'm going to take my uh, motion capture suit home and try it at home with a more powerful uh, Wi-Fi and see if I can get the thing at least to work there. And then I will bring in, um, I brought, I bought a, a like I said, a, a, like a, a gaming router. Uh, any thoughts on PG work? Yes, mobile moto. I'm going to be doing a moving back to America about PG work tomorrow. Um, and uh, that'll do it, I guess. Uh, so uh, once again, you know, this show is made possible by the very good uh, people who decided to become members of BillLittle.com, who, who keep us going through thick and thin. And, um, and uh, for our Facebook friends, I'm sorry I didn't get to the questions. Uh, I'm really going to have to do two of these a week. Uh, and as I said before, I'm thinking I might split them up. 
do one on, on the other channel. It's just nothing but pop culture and keep one, keep the stretch going for politics. Uh, all right, that'll do it. Um, so um, thanks again for joining us and uh, we will see you uh, next week uh, right here on your very own uh, your very own show, same strato time, same strato channel.